Jeff Nice was the leader of the Montgomery County, Maryland Police Department SWAT team and talks about the initial calls that came in on the first sniper victims. October 3rd was a bright sunny day, I remember. And 7.37 uh, that morning uh, in Rockville, Maryland, James Senate Buchanan is mowing the lawn near a car dealership when he shot and killed. I believe he was uh, 39 years old at the time. And uh, that became very personal for all of us in Montgomery County because he was the son of a Montgomery County uh, police officer, retired officer. So then shortly thereafter, at 8.12 a.m., a cab driver, 54 years old by the last name of Walker, he is shot and killed in Aspen Hill at a gas station. This actually makes things very problematic for us because where he is shot is 400 yards from the Gate of Heaven Cemetery. At that moment in time, a funeral procession is route to the Gate of Heaven Cemetery to bury a Montgomery County police officer. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome back, everybody. This is the best podcast about true crime anywhere in the universe that we know of. I'm Morgan Wright. I am the host here of Game of Crimes, and I am here literally with my partner in crime. Steve Murphy, but just call me Murph. The Murph, the Murpharama, the Murph man, the Murpharoni. So, uh, hey, everybody, welcome back. And, you know, we just wanted to, it was kind of a bummer last week because right after we dropped the episode, when we gave, when we dropped part two, yeah. We talked about Sherry um, losing one of her agents, um, and then uh, one of her other agents was wounded, and a task force officer was wounded. So we don't have a whole lot more to report on that other than it was, uh, you know, it's just one of those episodes, you, you can't control the timing, it just sucks. Right, it's just a you know, perfect example of what American law enforcement faces every single day. Yeah, these guys, uh, what we do know is that they were trafficking a quantity of marijuana, um, and like you said, Steve, one of them was wanted for murder. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a bad day. Bad day. But hey, let, let's have a good day. So let's have a good episode this time. This one is actually going to be very interesting. But before we get into it, let's talk a lot, just to qu some quick housekeeping. You know, head on over to Apple there. Uh, just give us the five-star review. It doesn't matter what you say. Say something kind. Give us some feedback. <laughs> but just hit that five stars. It's magic. It's Disney. It's uh, Disney on ice. It's whatever it is. It's just magic. We don't know how the magic works. We just know that it does, and it really helps us out a ton. Head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got our merch there. We've got this is where a lot of episodes drop. We when we have pictures like in this one with Jeff Nice and the DC sniper, he gave us a lot of pictures. So you're going to see some really cool pictures from the DC sniper case. Mm -hmm. um, we've got our merch over there. We've got new merch coming in all the time. We have a new logo too. So we redesigned the logo. So we got some wicked cool. It's going to be, we'll update that on the merch site too. Uh, we've got our mailing list there. Hop onto that so we know when to tell you about stuff that's happening that may not make it onto social media channels. But speaking of social media, follow us there at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and on the Instagram. But Steve, Patreon, we just got through recording our Q&A session for October. That was a blast. I loved oh, it. That was good stuff. And some of the questions that are asked are really good ones, tough ones. You know, current state of policing in America, what do we think? Uh, 
why is it that we didn't have psychological testing when Murph and I first started in law enforcement? We may not have been able to get hired. Who knows? I'd had to find a whole different career. Yeah, you could have gone back to the flooring business, you know, with your family oh, no. and stuff. Oh, no. Hated that. Hated that. But the cool but thing is those questions come in from our listeners. And I think we had nine questions this time, right? Yeah, and globally, too. We had Sweden, yep. you know, was one of the places it came in from. Uh, I think, you know, potentially the U.K. And I do have a follow-up. When we get into our small town police blotter, we actually got visibility way down in Australia. Woo-hoo. But Patreon is definitely where you want to be, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We've got, uh, in fact, we're voting. This is this theme this month. If you're at the uh, uh, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne level, it's Leonardo DiCaprio month. It's the theme. And we are voting on should we talk about The Departed, Shutter Island, or uh, I forgot what the other one was. But Me it's too. another... But it's, it doesn't matter. It's on there. If you want to know, you've got to go to the site and find out. So don't rely on us telling you, right? But it's exactly. definitely where you need to be. And if yep. you just want to support us with the one-off, that's okay. Go to paypal.com. Use our email, Podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to spend your money with us so that we can bring you terrific, great content. Right, Murphy Absolutely. This is the best place. We talk about all the crimes. We have a good time. We have it's crime time. It's crime time, fun time. So, and disclaimer though, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We do take the story seriously, but we never take ourselves serious, and it makes it so much fun. Never, ever, ever. Federal statutes, you know, um, it's the UN Charter of not taking yourself seriously on podcasts. We're all a part of, a, we're signatory to that charter. So, guys, we don't take them seriously. But we do have fun. And speaking of having fun, Steve. Oh, no. Here we go. Guess what time it is. I'm afraid to guess. It is time for Small Small Town Town Police Blotter. And guess what? Just from last week, the friend that we talked about, Rick Zach, friend of mine, Uh uh, actually works for Microsoft, gave us the story about the bear urine and the lady who set fires. (laughs) He actually had one of his friends in uh, Australia say, hey, mate, is this you? And it was. It was Rick. So, hey, congratulations to Rick. You are now international. But, hey, Steve, I like this first one. This one even made the front page of the Drudge Report. It's all... Wanted, a Turkish man searches for himself after going missing. <laughs> he didn't know where he was? <laughs> no, a 50-year-old man went missing after having drinks with his friends. As he wandered into the woods, his friends filed a missing persons report with police, following which a search operation was launched. The incident took a funny twist when it found that the man was part of the search team <laughs> that had gone looking for himself. <laughs> That's, you know what? That's like people when you pull them over as uniform officer and they say, don't you know who I am? Well, how the hell would I know if you can't remember your own name? <laughs> and that came to us via Jesse Pitts on the Game of Crimes fan page. So, Jesse, that was, I mean, and I saw that story and it's like, that's like a Zen thing. I have gone in search of mice. <laughs> or I'm just a freaking idiot. Who did he think he was searching for? Yeah, so he didn't know. They said, you know, um, you know, he said, uh his name was Behan Mutlu. Heard officials calling out for his name. He asked, why were they calling for me? I'm over here, he said nonchalantly. Me- meanwhile, media outlet uh, Vaziet shared a photo on Twitter that showed Behan with other rescue team members. So the dude's in the picture on Twitter searching for himself. That's one of the best ones we've got. I love that. Oh, man. Well, this one's good, too. This comes from Logan Dorhout. Hopefully I pronounced that right. Dorhout via also our Game of Crime. And another, guess what? We're getting all of these from our fans, from our players. Players. Yeah, yeah. This comes from Stone County. 
Sheriff's Office in Galena, Missouri. Population 437. Salute. All right. Last night, one of our Stone County residents posted a catalytic converter for sale on the Facebook Marketplace. There's a lot of these things being stolen, being mm -hmm. sold because of the materials inside of it. Right. So, it, I mean, it's actually happening. Apparently, he must have been under the influence because in the background of his picture he posted, he left a large bag of meth and a syringe on the coffee table. <laughs> So, the sheriffs hatched this onto one of their detectives, and today they arrived at the gentleman's house with the search warrant, and you can imagine his surprise. He still had 48 grams of meth and a pistol that he was forbidden to own. So, bad day for him. They provided him a new place to stay. Sorry, folks, catalytic <laughs> converters are not for sale right now. So, take note, if you're selling items on social media, make sure your drugs are not in the background, courtesy of Sheriff Raider, Stone County Sheriff's Office, Galena, Missouri. How did you guys ever find me? How did you know of a duh? Brilliant detective work. Brilliant <laughs> detective work. I just say no to drugs. Well, no, and this guy's he couldn't do that. And I saw the picture, Murph. It's hilarious. You see that bag of meth sitting back there. It looks like there's a scale next to it, too. It's like, what a moron. Yeah, and that's just a little bit more than personal use. You know, that's a distribution charge. All right, so this one is actually an international story. It comes to us from James George Curtis. That's a very British name. I, I think he's British because he gave us a British story. This was via the Facebook fan page as well. Steve, did you know a man was fined for pretending to be a goat? Goat, not a goat, a ghost for pretending to be a ghost at Portsmouth Cemetery. No, I didn't know that. So How do you police, do that? Police spokesman said witnesses complained about Anthony Stollard throwing his arms into the air and saying, Woo! <laughs> That's he illegal? Got, he got fined for pretending to be a ghost in other rowdy behavior with the I-O-U-R, as the British uh, spell it. Rowdy behavior in a cemetery. He pleaded guilty at the Portsmouth Magistrates Court to use threatening or abusive words or behavior likely to cause distress. Accordingly, they said the 24-year-old had been out drinking with friends when he went to Kingston Cemetery in Portsmouth. I actually looked it up on the map to make sure it was actually there. Yes, it is. Where they started to play football, a Hampshire police spokesman said the witnesses complained about his ratty behavior, and he started throwing his arms in the air and saying, Ooh, so he was fined 35 pounds, <laughs> ordered to pay 20 pounds to a victim surcharge and 20 pounds in cost. And guess what, Steve? He also had an extra three months added to his conditional charge for previous harassment when he was found to be in breach of, according to a Crown Prosecution Service spokeswoman. So... A charge of causing criminal damage to gravestones was dismissed. Oh, what a moron. Uh, some people just never learn, do they? No, they don't. And speaking <laughs> of not learning, Steve, it's time for we're bringing oh, it back. Geez. I gave you a reprieve last week. What oh, year no. was it? Oh, okay. okay. This comes to us from the Grand Island, Grand Island Daily Independent. This occurred on January 19th. You just have to figure out the year. Okay. So... Wood alcohol causes illness. Grand Island man nearly loses sight from drinking it. They confiscate a quantity of doctored wood alcohol and catches man in act of selling it. The chief declares this report by a physician that he was treating a man for wood alcohol poisoning and that the wood alcohol poison had been purchased here led to the arrest early Sunday morning of an Alliance man at a local hotel and the confiscation of, homemade, of a homemade still and a quantity of liquid declared to be wood alcohol doctored with something else. Wood alcohol? You can actually make alcohol out of wood? Uh, well, I don't know if it's called... Actually, that, you, know, you got me on that one. We're going to have to research that. Uh, you know, I task you with researching that. So Yeah, probably um, not going to happen, so don't hold your breath till I get back to you. 
So Chief Mandeville, who made the arrest, is confident that the capture of this man and the seizure of the alcohol was in time to prevent an epidemic of death and blindness spreading throughout the city as the prisoner had only been here a short time and but few sales probably have been made. So, Steve, we averted a crisis by arresting this man for wood alcohol. So was it January 19th? 1910, 1920, or 1930? Yeah, let's go with, let's see, when was Prohibition? Let's say 1910. Eh. Oh, 1920. <laughs> 1920 from the Grand Island Daily Independent. That was going to be my second guess. And the sale of going to be my second guess. Yeah, of course. Well, you only had three guesses to go, so... <laughs> Well, I can't believe your batting average, man. You suck at this. Hey, I got two right. Two you out of, what, 15? Out of 15, yes, so far. <laughs> so thus endeth the reading for today. That's um, it, huh? That's it. That's it, man. You're screwed. So, hey, but thank you to our folks who sent us in stories, and Absolutely. that would be James George Curtis, Logan Dorholt, Dorhout, hopefully I pronounce that right, and Jesse Pitts. Keep those stories coming in, and we will shall get them on the air. But Absolutely. Steve... It is time now for our episode. So uh, this one actually came to me through a buddy of mine that I've known for a long time, Mitch Cunningham, used to be a commander with the Montgomery County Police Department, and he was actually their lead hostage negotiator and worked with Chief Charles Moose during the D.C. sniper. So, uh, you know, Mitch uh, was involved in this, and I actually reached out to him. I wanted him to say, hey, would you come on and talk about this? And he was uh, he moved down to Wilmington, North Carolina, was an assistant chief at that time, and uh, just schedules didn't work out. He said, but here's somebody you ought to talk to. So he gave me the name of Jeff Nice, and then you and I met Jeff, and we got to talking to him about his story. And his story is amazing for a couple of reasons. It's number one is just his dedication to the job and his belief. I mean, this guy is just true blue, dedicated to the American way, dedicated to law enforcement, dedicated to protecting his uh, citizens and his fellow officers. Absolutely. But it's also a story of somebody who got uh, what should have been a terminal diagnosis, and this guy has survived. Mm-hmm. far longer than anybody thought possible. And so I, I just want to caution you guys, when you listen to this episode, it's I, I'm not going to do a lot of editing because Jeff is Jeff. This is the way he is. This is the way he talks. And he struggles. And part of it is because of the disease we'll talk about, you know, towards the end. And you got to remember, too, when we do, well, you already know this, if you're a player here, we do long form interviews and this took several hours to get done. And Jeff hung in with us the whole time. He came back on a second time and, and we answered some questions and did a little bit more. Uh, so hats off to Jeff. He's still, as I've, as I said before, just simply because you retire does not mean that your oath expires. And we all took an oath to protect the citizens of the United States, protect and defend the constitution. So Jeff is still doing that, even in this state. So God bless you, Jeff. It's uh, fantastic to have you on here with us today. And the other thing about this, Morgan, is you and I happened to live in the in the northern Virginia, D.C. area when we all here. this stuff was going down. So we, we were living were, it. We were potential, you know, innocent sheep running around here. Uh, could have been a potential victim in all this. Anybody could have been in their crosshairs, yeah. But the other thing we're doing, too, I'm going to tease it a little bit. you got to listen to episode two. We're doing a first of its kind, never been done before in podcast history. At least we think so. Yeah. It's called an embedded episode. We're embedding a mini episode inside this episode, and it relates to some of the evidence collected from... I don't want to tease it too much. We'll talk about mm-hmm. it for part two. But you got to stay tuned because we will do something in part two of this where we have somebody coming on to talk about evidence 
that was analyzed. This story is not known. In fact, this person said it's the first time they've ever done an interview yep. about this. So, Steve, we'll save that okay. and for the outro, and then we'll talk about it then. All right, everybody. So, Steve, i got to ask you, are you ready to play the biggest game of all, the game of crimes? You know me, and you know what I'm going to say. Get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring on Jeff Nice talking about the DC Sniper. This is an episode I have been looking forward to uh, for quite a while for a couple reasons. You know, Murph, you and I both live in this area. You were here when this happened. You know, and we both lived through it in a different way than the person we got coming on. But what we're talking about is the takedown of they've had different names, the Beltway Sniper, the D.C. Sniper of Malvo and Muhammad. And what we have with us is Jeff Nice. Jeff was one of the SWAT team leaders in Montgomery County, Maryland, that was there when law enforcement finally took down Malvo and Muhammad. So, hey, Jeff, brother, welcome to Game of Crimes. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, you say that now. Wait till we start making fun of you. <laughs> you know, and I'll let me throw my two cents in there also, Jeff. Thank you for what you did. Well, because that's Murphy's all he's got is two cents. He's got no sense otherwise. So, <laughs> but you use what you got, right? You got to capitalize on your, you got to recognize your weaknesses, Morgan. Uh, anyway, it is an honor and pleasure to have you on here, buddy, because like Morgan said in the intro there, uh, I was one of those people that was, you know, ducking down at the gas stations trying to figure out what we could do. I was still an, an active agent then, trying to figure out how our agency could throw in some federal resources to help you guys out, which you guys had it covered. But it's just the way law enforcement is. You always want to help, right? So it's take my hat off to you, brother. Thank you for what you guys did that day. And we'll get into it here in just a few minutes. Yeah, try not to steal all my thunder right up front there, Murphy. We had this <laughs> planned out. <laughs> it's the drama. We don't want to give the ending of the movie away, you know, right up front. Jeez. Yeah, I'll just bring you on here because I like you. That's the only reason you're here. <laughs> Why, Jeff, let's, let's, let us talk about you. Because as thing we always do when we get started, whether it's a crook, a criminal, a cop, an author, doesn't matter. We always want to start off, we all want to start off finding out about you. So, what, you know, what kind of led you down the path to eventually getting the, into law enforcement? I know you studied criminology, and you're, you're a native of the area, right? I mean, so you grew up, lived around the Montgomery County area? I was actually born in Pensacola, Florida, but most of my life was in Montgomery County. Ah, so now I start making the connection to the naval stuff. We'll talk about that in a minute. So most of your life in Montgomery. So, so tell us, how did you get into this whole law enforcement deal? When I was about 15, 16 years old, uh, I lived in an apartment complex, and my, I lived on the ground floor with my dad. And upstairs was a guy named Mike Day. He was a Montgomery County police officer. And I've always had great admiration and respect for law enforcement and the military. And he provided me with a lot of direction, you know, during those years. And uh, I had a lot of, uh, you know, uh, respect for him. And he just kind of was a great influence and during their teenage years. You know how it is when you're a teenager, you can have a lot of misdirection and he pointed me in the right direction. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Misdirection as the youth. I can tell you, growing up in Kansas where there wasn't much to do, I'm surprised I'm still alive at this point, some of the crap we pulled. So so, so you started off going to uh, Montgomery County Community College. What were you going to study at that point? Yeah. 
Hey, remember, dude, this is not court. You can continue to answer. <laughs> yes, sir. No, sir. Just keep, you just keep going on. We're, you know, this is, this isn't court. We haven't sworn you in. So, but, uh, you went to criminal justice, but eventually you went to the university of Maryland, but you had a decision at some point to make between going into the Navy and going into law enforcement. So tell us about that. Uh, that's a great point. Um, I went to, uh, university of Maryland, I majored in criminology. And while I was at the university of Maryland, I also got my pilot's license. Now, one thing that was uh, kind of neat is in order to get your pilot's license, you have to take a ground written test. So I went to a major there who was running the ROTC program in the Air Force, and all his class was ROTC. I asked him, as a civilian, could I come into your class? And the guy was really good about it. He goes, sure, come on in. So I came in as a civilian, and everybody else was dressed in uniform. The guys were really good to me. And I had the opportunity to study for the test based on what they presented. And ultimately, that allowed me to pass the uh, written test. And I got my pilot's license while I was, uh, you know, at the University of Maryland. So when I graduated, I was faced with a dilemma. Do I want to go in the military or do I want to go into uh, law enforcement? I tried to go in the military. <laughs> well, what is this try stuff? So you actually, I mean, you took the test, though. Yeah, what happened is I took the test to get Naval Flight School, and they came back and they said, your scores are not high enough to be a pilot. But if you like, we'll put you in the back seat uh, as a flight officer. As I looked back, I said no, and that was the right decision. Because many years later, I saw the movie Top Gun. I thought what happened, <laughs> I thought, I thought what happened to Goose at the top, but I was sitting in the back seat, and I said, I don't want any part of that. Yeah, hey, funny, funny quick divergent, funny story. When I was a detective, uh, me and a sheriff's officer went out to San Diego to pick up a homicide suspect. It was one of the cases we were working. We had a warrant to pick him up. We were extraditing him. We actually went to Casey's Bar and Grill right there at what's called around Horton Plaza, where that actual episode was filmed when they're in there. Sad part is that thing, I think, burned down later. But yeah, that was, uh, yeah, you don't want to be goose, you know, <laughs> in the ejector seat there. But I think they call those Rio's radar intercept operators too. So yeah, I had some buddies, but that's where Pensacola comes in. So a buddy of mine actually went through flight school at Pensacola. Is that where you got your love of, I mean, were you, do you remember that when you were young enough that you remember anything of the flying down there? Or how old were you when you moved from Pensacola? I was actually two when I moved from Pensacola. But uh, I knew that flight school was down in uh, Pensacola. My dad, when he was in the Navy uh, for four years, uh, he was out of Pensacola. Yeah, I got I got to tell you, that flying thing, you know, not to get off track here, but back in the 70s when I was a city cop in southern West Virginia, a buddy of mine and I started taking flying lessons, you know, thinking we're going to be these big commercial pilots. Well, he actually made it. He went to work for American Airlines eventually, and I think he's retired now, some big muckety-muck from the airlines. But I was doing real good until we went to the part where they teach you how to come out of a spin, and the instructor said, he's, you know, he's preparing you. And he's like, okay, you ready? Are you ready? And I said, no, I'm ready. Let's go. You know, I'm a tough guy. Let's go. He put that little piper into a spin, and I about crapped my pants. I couldn't do anything. I was frozen. We landed. I think that's the last flying lesson I ever had. I thought, you know what? This ain't for me. <laughs> well, the thing that I liked is I took my lessons at a freeway airport, which is near Annapolis. And because I had interest in the Navy, I liked flying over the Bay Bridge and see the Naval Academy there and so forth. But that ever played out for me. That Did you actually go ahead and go through the process of joining the Navy, or did you find out, since I couldn't do that, did you apply for law enforcement then at that time? Yeah, immediately after I applied for the Montgomery County Police Department in Maryland, and I was selected, I started the academy in 1981. Now, when I went through the academy, uh, there are various awards you can win. So I knew I was not going to win the academic award based on what happened in the Navy. <laughs> so I set my focus on winning the physical training award. 
And when I graduated in December of 81, I, I won that award. Wow. Oh, cool. So, you, nice. I mean, where did your physical fitness uh, come from? I mean, is that something you always did? Is that something you learned, you know, from your dad, military stuff? Yeah, I, I always had a big interest in exercise. My dad was a uh, teacher when I grew up. He was a tennis coach at American University. Now, during the, uh, the normal school year, he always worked a second job, and he was single at that time, so I didn't see much of him. That was not a bad thing. So back to being very independent during the school year. But the highlight was, as a teacher, he was off in the summertime, and he would work at various camps as a rec director. And he'd take me along, so I'd have access to all these athletic type things, whether it be softball, soccer, uh, you name it, uh, uh, tennis, people, whatever the camp offered. So it was a great mix, as I look back, between having uh, learning to be independent and having a great uh, athletic time during the summertime. Nice. Well, the reason I say that, we're not going to get ahead of ourselves yet, you know, that's, but that's going to serve you well later in life, obviously, not just for SWAT, but for some other things. But so you, so you put in your application, um, obviously you passed the written test for Montgomery County because you got hired. So what was the academy like when you, from the time you got hired, did they take you straight into the academy? Did you work the road for a while, ride with a training officer? How was your, how, how was your setup there? Yeah, you went through the academy and went through the academy, my, uh, Sergeant was a guy named Al Dooley, and he was very disciplined, and he'd been a uh, Marine recon in Vietnam. And I knew from day one, whatever that man told me to do, I was going to do. I mean, he was so strict, but it was a great thing. It instilled a lot of disciplines into me. When I graduated from the academy, I went to my shift. And uh, what I learned right off the bat on day one that really kind of stunned me is 80% of the guys in the shift had been in Nam. And because I had great admiration for military, I knew I was going to learn from guys who had real life experience. Now, you're assigned a training officer. My first training officer was a guy named Craig Kiefer. The guy was awesome. He told me a lot about honor, valor, integrity, commitment, dedication. He told me, look, every time you run a call, introduce yourself. So I said, hi, I'm Officer Nice, and this is Officer Kiefer. Now, the second uh, training officer I had was a guy named Rick Sweet. So the very first call we run, uh, the guy at the door, I go, hi, I'm Officer Nice, this is Officer Sweet. And the guy folds his arm and starts laughing his butt off. He goes, oh, it's also nice and sweet. And the three of us all kind of laughed and used I never thought about it until that point. Nice and sweet. So uh, I get back in the car, and Rick says to me, hey, we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, let's, let's not do that. Nice and sweet. You know, that's, oh, okay. He gets back to the station. He tells the whole shift. They're laughing hysterically. That sounds like a candy bar. Nice and sweet. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, like a Reese's cup. Yeah, we're going to, we'll start calling you, you know, you know, Jeff Splenda because you're so nice and sweet. <laughs> so the story spreads throughout the station and every time they saw us together, it was nice and sweet. But I have to tell you, that was kind of a special moment for me because they were joking in a fun way. And what I learned is that that's kind of the best thing about police with camaraderie and they're carrying on like that. That's exactly right. And, and you know what? That's, I'm sure you guys feel the same way. That's the biggest thing you miss in retirement is the camaraderie from the law enforcement family. Oh, without question. Yeah. Yeah, Steve's running around the uh, uh, you know his neighborhood. It's 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 you know it's just sad to see him talking to people, going, "Hey, hey, you guys want to hang out? You want to come hang out with me? Let's go do stuff. You want to go do stuff? Uh huh." Well, luckily, luckily, there's cop, luckily there's cops in my neighborhood, so I've got somebody <laughs> to hang out with. Well, I'll tell you the other thing too. You'll find out whether it's the law enforcement or the military. The difference between that and the as we call you know the civilian population sometimes is we'll talk smack to your face, but say good things behind your back. Unfortunately, I've been in those environments where they say good things to your face and bad things behind your back so look if to your point you know you're uh you know you've been accepted when they start giving you a load of crap and a ration of crap and i i know that we can't get in trouble for this anymore but when i was a rookie police officer 
here in Salina, they used to do this thing called railing. So you knew that you were accepted by the crew, you know, your shift and stuff when they railed you. And I had no idea what railing was. But like you were talking about, Jeff, one of the things I always did is that time we were wearing, you know, kind of the boots and stuff. So you had the pull-up straps. So I always hit a couple handcuff keys because I was paranoid about, for some reason, if I got taken hostage, you know, and handcuffed, I always wanted a handcuff key. So I had a handcuff key hidden in my boot. And so one time they bring me in and they go, hey, we, we got to do weapons check. So you know, we had the sand thing. So we had, I had a, a Smith & Wesson 357. So I dumped the ammo. I hand my weapon to it. And the next thing I know, seven, eight guys have grabbed me. And the one thing I was told is that when something happens to you, if you, you need to struggle, you need to put up a fight. Well, the whole deal was they take you and we had in the police department, you go up the second stairs, it would take you to the municipal court. Well, those stairs were pretty wide and they had metal rails on each side. So railing was, they would handcuff your hands apart to each rail. Oh, jeez. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, me being smart, I thought, okay, yeah. So what I did was I was let them go for a while, and they were going to let they leave you there for a while. I was able to get my boot up there, take my key that was hidden in my boot, and un- took me a while, but I uncuffed one of my hands, uncuffed the other, and I come down there like, hey, guess what, guys? And they looked at me, and they go, you shouldn't have done that, Skippy, because I basically got stripped down the next time. <laughs> Sorry, we went off on a tangent, but that's when you were talking about how you, when you get crap from people, that's where you know you... That so just, I remember you guys, Salina PD. I've never forgotten your name. I'm coming for you. You just remember that. That just reinforces everything I thought about you, Morgan. I mean, that just really reinforces some of my thoughts and and uh, what goes on in Kansas. And uh, I'm just a little scared to go out there now. Well, hey, the difference between Kansas and West Virginia. <laughs> yeah, well, the difference between Kansas and West Virginia is I know if I divorced my wife, she wasn't my sister to begin with. So let's not even go there, Murph. Hey, you know? we're all family. There's nothing wrong with family. Uh, let us get back to our regularly scheduled <laughs> podcast. So, uh, Mister, so Jeff Splenda, because you're so nice and sweet. So, uh, so, but, uh, but you know, day you said from day one you wanted to be on SWAT. So, talk about that a little bit. What's the process for getting on SWAT at Montgomery County? And by the way, too, tell us a little bit about the county and the size of the police department. Uh, sure. Uh, first of all, Montgomery County borders Washington D.C. on the northern side. We're just over 600 square miles. Um, our department was 1,200 officers in my day, and we serve a population of just over 1 million. I knew from day one I wanted to get to SWAT, and the reason I wanted to get to SWAT was to satisfy that urge I had on the military side in a civilian environment. It's kind of the application of tact to the high-risk environment. Certainly nothing compared to what the military does, but on some small form, I get a taste of it. So I knew from day one you know, I wanted to get to SWAT. And when I left, in, uh, we have two SWAT teams, basically a full-time team, that's called the Central Team, and a part-time team called the D-SWAT Team. When I left in 2014, the full-time team had two sergeants and 11 officers, and the D-SWAT Team had 18 guys from the rank of sergeant below. Now, the Central Team, or full-time, all we do is SWAT operations. We were averaging 200 raids and barricades a year, and uh, we do other details as well, dignitary protection, whatever it may be. And the D-SWAT team, they're in other assignments throughout the department, whether it be patrol, investigator, or whatever it may be. And they're supplement us on an ad-need basis. And we have a very definitive process in terms of being selected to the team. What happens is a position vacancy uh, occurs because what happens is guys in the central team get promoted out of the unit or leave for whatever reason, and they're filled by guys in the D-SWAT team. This creates a void on our decentralized team. So about every two or three years, we run a... Uh, SWAT selection school. A position vacancy is announced. 
To apply, you have to be the rank of police officer three, which means you have two year, or three years of experience, or a police officer one with one year's experience, and some sort of specialized military training, such as maybe you're a combat unit in the Marines, and or SEALs, whatever it may be. And typically, we have about 50 people who apply for the position back in my day. You have to pass two sets of tests to attend the school. First, a physical training uh, test, and then a firearms test. Now, the physical training test was developed by um, a group called ARA Human Factors. They developed standards for NASA, some military teams, and some law enforcement teams. What they did is they came and they rode around our central team for about three or four weeks, seeing what they did on a daily basis. And they developed standards based on what they saw. There are six components to that test. The first is 60 push-ups, and this tests muscular endurance. The second is 45 sets uh, in, in under a minute, and this once again tests muscular endurance. The third event is four pull-ups with a 35-pound weight attached. The 30-pound 30 30 weight simulates the weight of your gear. It tests muscular strength and the ability to traverse obstacles. Then you have to do a rope climb with that 35-pound weight, again simulating the weight of your gear. The fifth event, and this is kind of an interesting one, is you had to run four flights of steps in under 30 seconds, but you didn't full gear with your heavy body armor on, your ballistic helmet, your M4, and carrying a 45-pound dumbbell. <laughs> the 45-pound dumbbell simulated half the weight of the two-man 90-pound battering ram. It was the idea of moving this ram quickly under exigent circumstances up a flight of stairs. And again, it was under 30 seconds. And the final event was a three-mile run in under 26 minutes, which tested your aerobic ability. If you passed all these tests, then we gave you the firearms test. You had to pass... Uh, with your handgun and shotgun at 90%, and the call was more difficult than the standard uh, call for the department. And typically, out of 50 guys that would uh, take this test, maybe half would pass. So we'd have maybe 25 guys would go to this school. The school would last for three weeks, and it was very demanding. Physically, we also test their firearm skill set, uh, things like ability for target identification, very important. Um, the ability to function within a team concept uh, with sleep deprivation and as a leader sometimes. And ultimately, out of the school, would take about four people. And that's how you're being part of this program. So for those, for those push-ups, can I do like 10 a day, six days in a row, and there's my 60? <laughs> yeah, can we do the installment plan? <laughs> what the hell? Holy cow. This is why I stayed a detective, and all I did was I was like MacArthur coming back on the beach. I just point my finger at a door and said, okay, boys. You know, Take that's the one. <laughs> Take it down. <laughs> Can I share with you something about push-ups? Sure. Only if you don't make me do any on this podcast. <laughs> when I went to the police academy uh, in 1981, I set the record. I was told it still stands. It was 232 continuous. What? Two, 232 push-ups? Correct. Uh, what I would do is because I had set my mind that I wanted to win that work. Every Saturday, I would go to the gym. I would max out on push-ups and max out on sit-ups. And fortunately, it paid off for me. Let me tell you what, Morgan, don't piss him off. You know? Well, I'm going to stay far <laughs> away from him. <laughs> he might come and break us. <laughs> hey, don't worry. I'm an old man. I can only maybe do one or two. <laughs> so are we. <laughs> well, we're hell, much, I thought I did good. Much I was... more, 
I'm sorry. We're much more brittle than we were back yeah. then. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, I'm out on my bike. You know, you know, I'd love riding and stuff, but yeah, the I remember going through basic training in the military ROTC, you know, and then the State Patrol Academy and stuff is like, yeah, okay, you know, that's good. We had a guy in our class that could just basically push the ground away, and I'm like, yeah, God bless you. I'm going to use my brain. Thank you very much. Lots of stuff for using brain. Oh, man. <laughs> well, dude, so, uh, I mean, and, which is good because we're laying the groundwork again for – a lot of what comes later, not only for when we start talking about the DC sniper, but for a challenge you face, you know, later on in life. So, mm-hmm. so you get on, this is 1981 by like, what is it? 1984, 85. Then are you uh, on D SWAT at that point then the decentralized team? 1984, I came on D SWAT and I ultimately served 30 years in SWAT as an operator, team leader, and commander, longest history of the team. And, uh, did 4,500 operations of uh, raids, barricades over the course of that time to include the takedown of the DC snipers. Wow. Wow. You know what? I, it goes without saying, but thank you for your service, Jeff, in all sincerity. I, we mean that, you know, yeah. from our hearts. Holy cow, 4,500 ops. Yeah, Officer Splenda. Yeah, <laughs> I told you don't piss him off. Come on, no, well, I can do that. We're you know we're doing this on video. He's gonna have to find me first. But uh... I think he could. Wait, you guys are good. Hey, you know what? He found the, the, the DC snipers. You think he can't find us? Yeah. Well, look, <laughs> I got a Camaro. I can drive really fast. So uh, hey, but uh, but how long were you? So while you were on D SWAT, you were running just basically uh, calls for service. You were a street officer, right? Oh, that's correct. Uniform patrol. Yeah. So how long were you on uniform? How long were you on patrol, uniform patrol, before an opening on centralized uh, uh, SWAT came up? I was D SWAT for eight years, and then I went to central team. What year? What year did you finally make it on? I guess it was ninety-two. Ninety-two. Oh wow. So all right. So now, from night. So from ninety-two on, you're just full-time SWAT, right? Correct. How did you do? How did you? Uh, so when you got started, what were you, you? You were obviously, you know, the junior guy or the new guy. But what were you doing for those first few years? Um, uh, early on, breacher, and the guy that you know, would breach the door with the battering ram, things of that nature. And early on, we actually had, uh, you know, everybody went to uh, sniper school when everybody was an assaulter. But as time progressed, in 1996, we developed our explosive breaching program. And when that happened, we decided that sniper craft was a very specific uh, craft, and that breaching was a very specific craft, from mechanical breaching to ballistic and or shotgun breaching to explosive. So what we did is we decided you either would be a sniper or a breacher, couldn't be both. We want you to focus on your uh, a craft. So ultimately from about 96 on, my total focus was on breaching. I love breaching. Yeah, so, and, and I'm sure our listeners have figured this out where a breacher is, but that means you're the guy standing in front of the freaking door, which could be <laughs> like a death tunnel if somebody fires through that door, right? Yep. Oh, man. But the highlight is, as soon as you have breach that door, you step back and let the shield man go through. Right, right. But you got to you gotta hang it out there to start with. You're the first man up there in front of that door. So, Jeff, so obviously some of these operations involve dope dealers, which we know like to reinforce doors. So what's one of the toughest breaches you had to do? Huh, wow. That's why I ask these questions. You know, I prepare for this kind of stuff. You got to bring your A game. Murphy knows this. <laughs> He's still, speaking of D team, Murphy's still on his D game while I'm bringing my A game. There was a group of serial bank robbers that were featured on America's Most Wanted. There was nine of them total, to include their leader, Miguel Moro, who's one of two homicide warrants. They had done nine armed robberies. They're armed with AK-47s and heavy body armor. And uh, Wow. In three of the armed robberies, they had done six shots were fired. 
And on one occasion, a Peachy County cruiser took 22 hits from an AK-47. Now, when you, uh, sir, a lot of people don't know all the, when you say PG County, you're talking about Prince George's? Correct. That's our neighboring uh, jurisdiction. Okay. And the other, uh, had, a, the other robberies had occurred in DC and it was one in our county. So what happens is back in 2004, if I recall correctly, what happens is in July of 2004, the U.S. Marshals Service contacts us and said they've located these individuals and they're in an apartment in Silver Spring. So we know that, you know, this is going to be a dicey one. So we hook up with the marshals, and basically we end up doing an uh, explosive breach on the door to make entry. And uh, the U.S. Marshals, in combination with Montgomery County Police, uh, took three individuals into custody that were in there at that time, to include the leader, Miguel Morrow, and body armor, and a bunch of AK-47s. You know, it's interesting because somebody had once compared it, I never thought about it, but the movie Heat, in terms of, how these guys yeah. operated and who they were. And that was kind of the, as I thought back, you know, that's very much kind of the setting, if you will. Now, did you end up getting the other six guys that day, or when did they? When were they taken into custody? Yeah, what happened was one was already in custody, as it turned out, uh, on an unrelated charge, and the other five were ultimately uh, collected up by the marshals and feds and so forth. Cool. Well, man, that's that's one of those when you get in there and you realize, first of all, your pucker factor's got to be around, you know, 10 and a half to 12 because, you know, you're going up against guys who are armed. They've got body armor. You know, they've already fired shots. You know, you know they're going to shoot at you. So, wow. Hey, what was the... T- Go ahead. And I'm sorry, but this is a, a very important aspect of a no-knock search warrant. It gives you the element of surprise. And everybody knows the importance of an element of surprise in a high-risk tactical situation. Look what the Japanese did at Pearl Harbor. Look what the terrorists did on 9-11. Imagine if we did not have the element of surprise going against these guys. Now, who, who, who got to toss the flashbangs? That's the funnest part. Well, with the explosive breach, we didn't need a flashbang. Oh, okay. And in fact, uh, you know, explosive breach, a lot of people think there's going to be a lot of fragmentation and debris going everywhere. It's quite the contrary. It's very calculated science. Because one of the biggest applications is uh, hostage rescue, where, you know, making sure that hostages are safe. And as an example of this, one suspect was four feet from the door when we blew the uh, door came open. He was not injured in any way. His beer bottle on the table in front of him was not overturned. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very calculated science. Well, you don't want to knock over a beer. That would be a, that would be a tremendous crime. <laughs> I mean, that's, you knocked over my beer. God. Hey, how, how loud is that when that goes off? What, what kind of charge did you guys use, and uh, how loud was that? It's a water impulse charge. Water cannot be compressed. And on a steel door, what that does is it, pushes the door open, and it shrinks the size of the door smaller than the frame itself. So um, the, the charge is very loud, and it's in, we're in a narrow stairwell, and it was a third floor, so it echoed into the parking lot. Now, anytime we do an explosive breach, a concern we have is for the safety of the other occupants on that floor. We obviously don't want them coming out as we're doing the charge. So what we do is we set the charge, other officers come up and tie those doors off with rope. So that way they cannot open it as we hit the uh, charge, it goes off. Hmm. Wow. wow, we used to do that shit in college, but we didn't do, we didn't breach. <laughs> we were doing breach. You didn't, want, well, you, didn't want your, you didn't want your girlfriend to get away, did you? You had her tied up there. That's, plural, that, that's, where the, uh, that's where the handcuff key thing came from, huh? Yeah, well, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny, Senator. Um, so, so, you know, that's obviously, like I said, what was one of the toughest, was there a door that you guys came up against breaching that took two, three, four, maybe tries? It's like, Jesus, what, what, what did they do, make this thing out of concrete? Um, there have been occasions where guys have hit a door on, you know, multiple times, 
with a RAM and you find out later that there were you know, additional lock mechanisms and so forth on it. But uh, fortunately, uh, uh, most of our guys were very good and very effective at breaching. And certainly with the battering ram, there's a certain place that you want to hit it on the door. And there's a process to just, you don't arbitrarily hit it. There's a certain place that you want to hit it based on the door. And one thing we always do is, uh, uh, before we did a raid, is a, uh, what we call a drive-by. We gather intelligence. So you would gather intelligence on your breach points. You had a lot of information on what the door system was and how you want to attack that. You know, when I was in Miami back in the 80s, when we would do these high-risk entries, we'd call Metro-Dade SWAT team to come out. And it was not unusual for these, especially the traffickers, to have these steel doors, um, you know, the the decorative steel doors, yeah. like, a, like a storm door. And it was really cool to watch the SWAT guys bring a wrecker up there and run that cable out and just jerk that thing right off the hinges. <laughs> And one thing I will point out to you is a door is only as strong as the frame it sits in. True. So you have a weak wood frame, then it doesn't matter. That door is going right through. The one I loved was the uh, armored uh, six-wheeled vehicle that LAPD had with that huge battering ram on the front and on the front of it said, have it a nice day. Yeah. And they would knock in the front door of gangbanger houses. <laughs> kind of have a sense of humor. Knock, knock. Here I come. Knock, knock. Here we come. Well, it's the police. Hey, so... Um, you are on SWAT like these for years. You make uh, the centralized team. And so let's kind of lead up. I mean, you're, you're running, like you say, at, at least one operation a day, right? I mean, is that about your tempo? Yeah, I would say we're uh, probably two out of three days we're doing a raid and a barricade out of the entire year. Two out of three. Wow. So that, that obviously kept you busy. And... Um, so then, you know, as we always find out as we lead up to this, the sniper incident and, you know, the Beltway Sniper started in 2002, but 2001, because this is kind of sets the context, right? So for people, you know, we refer to this as the DMV, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. It's also the National Capital Region. So you've got, uh, you know, in uh, you've got D.C., you've got in Maryland, you've got Prince George's and Montgomery County in Virginia. You've got Fairfax, Loudoun, Prince William, Arlington, and Alexandria. So just to kind of put this in context, not only with the 9-11 attacks, but with the D.C snipers. I mean, the NCR, what they call the NCR air is uh, 5,564 square miles, 6.1 million population. I mean, who knows? I mean, I, I knew at one time, but I think there's probably over 40 or 80 law enforcement agencies in that, probably 10,000 law enforcement officers. So when we're talking about incidents like this, we're talking about massive coordination, communication, you know, a lot of stuff that has to go on. And that's what we found out, too, on 9-11. A lot of people don't realize the Pentagon is in Arlington County. A couple of my buddies on Arlington County were some of the first responders. That's in Virginia. It's not in D.C. But, uh, but for you, so I say all of that to say this, where were you on 9-11? I was actually in Germany at the time, overseas. I have to tell you, it was kind of striking because uh, you see all these events happening in the United States, and obviously there's nothing I'm going to be able to do about it. But you do feel a sense of loss just because you're not in your own country. And... If you recall, all the flights coming to the United States were canceled. I was supposed to come back to the United States the day after. So like, it was like a week and a week and a half before I come back to the country. And at that point, you know, everything I was over with, I was learned from my friends secondhand how everything unfolded, so to speak. Especially right there in your home, the National Capital Region. Correct. We were, I think we were probably 20 miles from the Pentagon from where I lived. Yeah, we've talked about this on other podcasts, but I was in the Reagan building that day. We had meetings because they can do stuff there and, and the Pentagon and stuff. But we were in the Reagan building. I remember walking across the Roslyn Bridge, seeing the Pentagon burn. I mean, you just talk about traffic jams and uh, 
Um, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's very surreal. And just to that first night too, I live close to Dulles airport. Steve and I do. So, uh, Steve, I don't know if you remember that first night. It's like, you hear the sounds, but it's a different, it's not airliners, it's jet fighters and that combat air patrol and that, you know, that crisp, clean sound of a F-16 or F-18, whatever they have out here, they're flying what they call cap. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, being that close to Dulles Airport, you're used to hearing commercial jetliners coming in, landing and taking off. And it was that eerie silence. But then, like you said, you'd hear that scream of a jet fighter. Never once did I see the fighter. But boy, you heard them all the time. And it's interesting that two of you guys say that because when I first got back, that's what the guys told me all about. They said, all they heard was these jets flying over here, but never saw them. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? It gave me a sense of uh, a little bit of security. I mean, you know, we had only been living in the D.C. area just for a few weeks. We just transferred up from Atlanta when that happened. And, you know, my wife and I were thinking, what the heck did we get ourselves into? Um, you know, then a few months later, your case comes along with the D.C. sniper. But uh, I tell you what, we were first time ever. We had our we had our go bags ready. And my whole family. Yeah. did. we had we had provisions. We had weapons ready. We had ammo. We had uh, predetermined meeting spots if we got split up. Uh, and I'll tell you what, we were heading right back to the mountains of West Virginia because we knew our way around over there. And Well, uh, speaking of that, too, there used to be, it was formerly classified facility in the uh, uh, Blue Ridge Mountains, uh, right where Loudoun and Clark County, and it's Mount Weather. And that was this, and actually there were, there were people flying, they were flying helicopters because I remember seeing some helicopters too. They're flying people there because that stuff is buried in the ground. They discovered that, I think it was 1976 when a, I think it was a TWA jet crashed into the side of the mountain and all of a sudden guys in fatigues and M16 start showing up and saying, hey, you can't get any closer. So, uh, but yeah, that was the seat of government. So you, but the reason I say all of that too, because you come back one week later and one week after 9-11, I don't know how else to say it's called, and I don't know that they've actually really solved it. I know they say they have, but they haven't. We get fucking hit with anthrax. These anthrax attacks start. And so we're dealing still with 9-11, and now we have anthrax going on. Did you guys get any of the white powder or the anthrax um, um, issues up in your area, Jeff? I just remember hearing about it, but nothing specific to Montgomery County, as I recall. Yeah, because uh, I remember that everything was changing, you know, it, you know, so it's like, so we're dealing with that, we're dealing with this, and then the reason I'm saying that, setting the stage, is that you've got a huge area out here, and then we start in uh, 2002, we start in October of 2002 is when a lot of this, I'd say officially starts, there were some things that happened beforehand, but tell me about that day. Were you working that day on October 2nd? I was, and go back to, I'm going back to a great point you just made. When these events unfolded, we did not know if it was domestic terrorism or foreign terrorism related to Al-Qaeda. Especially coming in on the heels of 9-11 and the anthrax threat. No doubt. So walk us through that day. Um, because I actually, um, we'll talk about this later. I had done, I'd been doing some stuff. It was used to be classified. It's unclassified now. But we were looking at, it started with the 9-11 hijackers, the 19. Six of the 19 had contact with law enforcement. We're looking at, well, what kind of contact did they have? What could we do? And there are a lot of parallels to, here to the sniper case we'll talk about in a little bit. But what were you doing that day, October 2nd? Uh, you were obviously on duty. And actually, I'm going to go to October 3rd because that is the day that really kicked things off in Montgomery County. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's Oct October 2nd was the first shooting they didn't know about that preceded that. And uh, October 3rd was a bright, sunny day, I remember. And 7.37 uh, that morning uh, in Rockville, Maryland, Jameson Buchanan is mowing the lawn near a car dealership when he shot and killed. I believe he was uh, 39 years old at the time. 
And uh, that became very personal for all of us in Montgomery County because he was the son of a Montgomery County uh, police officer, retired officer. So then shortly thereafter, at 8.12 a.m., a cab driver, 54 years old by the last name of Walker, he is shot and killed in Aspen Hill at a gas station. This actually makes things very problematic for us because where he is shot is 400 yards from the Gate of Heaven Cemetery. At that moment in time, a funeral procession is en route to the Gate of Heaven Cemetery to bury a Montgomery County police officer. A guy by the name of Bill Faust had died several days earlier of a heart attack. I actually knew him. He was a motor officer or traffic specialist. Uh, and early in my career as a rookie police officer, he helped me out big time with traffic investigation on some of these accident scenes. So at this point, you've had these two shootings and there's no connection. But a guy named Drew Tracy, who was commander of the third district station, uh, he was my former SWAT sergeant from years earlier. Well, there's no connection. He thought it'd be prudent to protect that site, the Gate of Heaven Cemetery. Because Faust had been a 30-year veteran, not only did he have family and friends responding, but he had law enforcement from many agencies also that were going to be in attendance. So what we do is we put sniper teams out around the Gate of Heaven Cemetery and uniform officers uh, in support. Tracy reached out to our neighboring jurisdiction, PG County, for a helicopter. And the helicopter provides overwatch protection and escorts the procession as it makes its way into the Gate of Heaven Cemetery without incident. Now, while all this is occurring, three miles north of the cemetery at the Leisure World Shopping Center at 8.37 a.m., Sarah Ramos is shot and killed as she sits on a bench in front of a post office. Now, during the Sarah Ramos shooting, a witness reporting a white box truck leave at a high rate of speed. And let's stop right there for a second because this, this, is, this is the crux of why it was very difficult to get accurate witness reports because if the media or if an initial report comes out, you get this bias and, and you know, and it's, pers you know, and I can tell you the thing that drove me nuts is every time, it, what is everybody looking for when there's a shooting that's going on? White box truck, you know, white panel van. So the, it's not to saying that witnesses are inaccurate, but what we're doing is we're linking what's called correlation and causation. We're trying to link the two. There was a white panel van there, a box truck, but we don't know that it's the cause of the shooting. And that's kind of where this all starts, right, Jeff? And uh, Correct. The uh, information was that the white box truck left at a high rate of speed. It was thought to have a diesel-type engine the way it sounded and a lot of exhaust coming out of the back. And the witness said that the sound of shots had given the proximity of the white box truck. So this is the first potential vehicle lookout that we had reference to snipers. So what we did is those that were not assigned to the sniper detail, we went out and stopped every um, box truck that we saw. And not long after that, at 9.55 a.m. in Kensington, Maryland, uh, Lorianne Lewis Rivera, age 25, she's at a Kensington uh, shell station gas station. She's vacuuming out of her van. And her two-year-old daughter is the car, and she's shot and killed. Ugh. Imagine that. No. So what you had was four shootings in two hours, all one shot, one kill, leading to speculation that we might be dealing with a sniper. Well, and I remember when the reporting started coming out on that, you go, you know what it reminded me of? It's being, in, like I said, in the Reagan building that day, and you're watching the news, and you see the first plane hit. And then you go, well, that's, you know, you're not sure is that, you know, is that an accident or whatever. But the minute the second plane hits, 
my mind, everybody else, this is a terrorist attack. I mean, there is there is no there is no way in hell the probability that two planes hit the World Trade Center at the same time. And that's my thought is you got to be thinking at that time, maybe not after the second one, but when you get the third one, then obviously that fourth one, you've got four shootings within, like I said, two, two and a half hours. I mean, that's at, at that point, it's pretty clear, man. You've got, uh, you know, you've got, uh, you know, a spree killer at least going on right now, if not, a, you know, a serial killer. Without question, that's a great comparison to make. And I have to tell you that because we had those four shootings so quickly, I thought whoever was doing these shootings wanted to fight. I thought the shootings would continue that day until there's a shootout with police. And then suddenly there's eerie calm. Everything stops. You know, all the high-speed velocity from early on. So what happens is we send two senior snipers to the scene of every shooting. We want to determine the shots are being taken from an elevated position. They come back and determine they are not being taken from an elevated position, but they could not determine, could not determine exactly where the shots were taken from. What, what kind of insight did that give you at that point? I mean, did you have any clue at that point that it was coming from a vehicle? Did you have any idea about how the shooters were approaching? Uh, none whatsoever at that point. But... Uh, you know, the only thing we knew is that they weren't climbing on the top of the building, which is important to know. Yeah. So we worked through the day and into the night. And then that night, um, just inside the D.C. line from Montgomery County by about 100 yards uh, on George Avenue, Pascal Charlet, a uh, 72-year-old male, was shot and killed. She had five shootings on that day. And what happened, coming back to uh, your point earlier, investigators soon find out there were two shootings the previous evening on October 2nd. And what happened was at the Michael's Arts and Crafts store in Aspen Hill, which coincidentally happened to be 200 yards from where uh, the cab driver Walker was shot and 200 yards from the Gate of Heaven Cemetery where Bill Faust was buried, um, the sniper shot through a uh, plate glass window. And a cashier remember feeling a wisp over the head, but fortunately nobody was hit. Then one hour later, five miles down the road in the Glenmont Shopping Center, James Martin was shot and killed. And the shooting of Martin, I got to tell you, it showed you how brazen these guys were. Because 100 yards from where he shot is the 4th District Station of the Montgomery County Police Department. There were 150 officers assigned to that station at that time. So I just thought, like, who's doing this, you know, when you had all this come together? If you look at it, you had seven shootings in a 30-hour period, six of which had occurred in Montgomery County. Well, it quickly, ATF got involved and determined that the caliber weapon was a 223, which, unless you're using some significant... A uh, silencer makes a very, very loud bang when it's shot, right? Uh, without question. And you make a great point right there because the 223 caliber, you know, as you guys know, um, it's associated with the AR-15 and the M-16 and various models thereafter. It has an effective range of five to 600 yards and it's capable of penetrating some types of police body armor. Jeez, jeez. So well, we just had that discussion with Mike Neal, you know, when we were talking about the green tips and stuff like that. Mike Neal was the uh, Game and Fish uh, agent who got into the shootout with the West Memphis, um, uh, the guys who'd killed the sovereign citizens who killed the West Memphis police officers. And that's what we were talking about is uh, green tips and penetrating body armor and, you know, things like that. But, but you know, the other thing, though, too, is I'm just telling you from my standpoint, um, what, the minute I hear that a 223 is involved, I'm thinking from an officer safety standpoint, all of a sudden where I need to be concerned about has just exponentially increased. Because if you said it's a 357 or a 45, and it's kind of like, I could probably see that guy coming. But the minute you say 223, because I've got a 223, I, actually a, 
it's uh, chambered for 5.56. But I've got two different kinds of scopes on it and stuff. I can do long range. I can do short range. But to your point, I mean, now you're talking about, I remember in, in uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Misery, um, sitting out at 300 meters with an M16 and just iron sights hitting a target out there. You know, and I'm good, Murph. We still have a bet going on. Him and I have got a shootout coming up at the range at some oh, point. Yeah, well, I've yeah. I've heard the story before. I'm yeah, taking a little yeah. nap while you tell it again. Nah, I'm not going to tell that story. I'll save it for later. But but, you're, but I guess but what I'm saying is, but from my mind, I'm sitting out there and I'm thinking now as a cop, everybody's a target now. I mean, it's hard to defend against uh, somebody shooting, uh, sniping at you with a two twenty three. It's uh, That's a distant weapon that snipers use, obviously, so you can't be detected. But the significance of that is, uh, you know, 100 yards from a police station, you're still going to hear that, you know, and, and that does take some balls to do that. Well... You're also, if you're 100 yards from the police station, that means all those officers in range. And if you guys remember, uh, those two uh, Fairfax County uh, detective and police officer were ambushed and shot and killed coming out of their police department, um, you know, a few years after that. Same same kind of deal. But um, so, so go back to that, Jeff. So now you've got, how long did it take for them to connect the shooting the night before, uh, you know, on October 2nd with Martin to the four shootings? Yeah, that was very uh, quickly uh, connected by our investigators. Unfortunately, ATF very quickly determined that it was a 223 caliber and the shooters were related. So what happened is we work uh, that whole day through the night into the following morning, and we expect to start all over again. But instead, they hit 60 miles south of us in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Carolyn Sewell, she's at a local mall. She's shot. Unfortunately, she survives the incident. That's Spotsylvania County. So you're talking about they're taking 95. I mean, they're going back and forth. Oh, no doubt. And I have to tell you, um, sorry, I lost my thought there. Um, well, we're talking about Carolyn being shot. And um, and for you folks who are listening, there's you're going to hear some hesitation. Jeff, you're going to get the backstory to this in a little bit, and you're going to be amazed by it. So we just need to, you know, let's just hold on. But yeah, Jeff, what we were talking about is uh, Carolyn being shot down in Fredericksburg. You know, she survived though. Thanks for getting me back on track. Probably what happened was uh, early on, our investigators were obviously overwhelmed and we needed additional assets. And unfortunately, the feds came in. Uh, Did you say fortunately or unfortunately? Fortunately. There you go. FBI came in, ATF, U.S. Marshal Receiver. Secret Service and others. And what the feds did, they took over a commercial building adjacent to our police headquarters for their jock or joint operations center. Now, one thing that they brought that was helpful to the investigators is what's called rapid start. As I understand, it's a case uh, information management system. So you track all this information that's coming in, hundreds and hundreds of leads that are coming in. Now, while the investigators were getting the help they needed, we also needed help on the tactical side because we had worked through the night and the following morning, 36 hours straight. But you know officers out there 24 hours a day. So we had a long-standing uh, history with both the FBI hostage rescue team and Montgomery, our Maryland State Police SWAT. With uh, FBI HRT on numerous occasions, we had gone down to Quantico, and they had provided training and use of their facilities. And Maryland State Police SWAT, they'd always been there when we needed them. So what happens is they provide additional operators. And ultimately, now we were able to field two shifts of 30. 24 hours a day. We work 12-hour shifts, uh, seven days a week. That's an op tempo that's hard to keep going because you've got, uh, you know, people think, oh, it's just 12-hour shifts, but your your adrenaline is rushing each day because you're going, you know, when a call comes out, I mean, you've got to be on high alert because the other thing you got to be thinking of too is you got to be thinking that maybe we're targets too. I mean, your head's got to be on a swivel. You've got to be looking around all the time. Uh, without question. I mean, 
Um, fortunately, I'm surprised that the police were not uh, targeted and no one was hit. You know, and that's 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 another uh, example of dedication to law enforcement. You know, we got these cupcakes out here now that want to knock everything down to a 25-hour work week and think that's oh, that's sufficient. You know, and here you guys are knocking out was that seven times twelve at 84 hours per week. You know, and, and you, you're not getting eight hours sleep because you're all amped up. You don't want to know what's going on. Am I missing something? That's the way the the law enforcement community is because they want to get out there and help their fellow man. No doubt. Now, Ash has said the. HRT was provided, and as people like were great, we did not have were helicopters. Mm-hmm. And one thing that was great about HRT is they put snipers out on their helicopter, provide overwatch, so that way they could watch the operations from above. And this is a huge asset that we did not have. So um, wow. a, a big issue was we were transitioning to a new radio system, and this created interagency uh, communication as a potential problem. So the commander of the Montgomery County Task Force, Drew Tracy, he came up with an idea I thought it would be problematic, but actually turned out to be brilliant. What he wanted to do was mix and match our teams. In other words, he wanted, in each vehicle, one FBI HRT operator, one Maryland State Police SWAT officer, and one Montgomery County SWAT officer. Now, the concept was the call would come over our radio, and all tactical operators were here at the same time. He wanted Montgomery County police officers driving because we knew the area best and provide efficient response. Now, my concern was that as SWAT teams, we all knew tactics, but no two teams do things exactly the same. But what happened is very quickly, uh, we rapidly gelled into one team, where our movements became second nature to each other, much as it would be with your own team. So uh, that played out well based on his decision. You know, that's that's not a minor issue either, Jeff, is it, that the fact that you got uh, type A's from three different agencies, you know, Two locals and well, you got a local estate and a Fed agency working together, and we've all experienced it. You know the egos get in the freaking way. So the fact that you guys were able to overcome the ego issue, that's that's monumental. And you make a uh, great point there because I have heard instances here, there, wherever, but I can tell you that on the SWAT side, I don't know how it played out throughout the, you know, the investigative end and everything else. I want to tell you that on the SWAT side. Uh, as far as I said, we were one team. We gelled, gelled as one. It was awesome working with these guys. Fantastic. I mean, that, I, I, in all sincerity, that, that was just the best thing that could have happened. That's what led to your success. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's you're right. You train differently. You, you live differently. You work differently. But you got to come together. But during this time, though, too, Jeff, I mean, it, it, you talk about changing habits, not just police, but people. I remember going to get gas, and I remember people, and I did. I, I hid behind gas pumps. You got gas stations that were putting tarps out over things. You got people, I'm watching them go into what I refer to as the headquarter of the evildoers, Costco. Um, but, you know, people are zigzagging. I mean, to, to get into that, I mean, you had, I mean, obviously you were seeing some of the same area. Right about this time, after these shots and after all these things happened in such short order, I'm telling you, it was, it led every newscast. I mean, you had almost, it was almost like 9-11 again, wall-to-wall coverage of what was going on. How were you guys, you know, how was the impact on you guys and your families and, you know, and the other people you're working with? And Morgan, you make a great point, because I'll share with you something I saw that I thought was amazing. I saw one person run from the grocery store, zigzag, like you talk about. Then when they got in the car, they dropped down real low so they could not be seen. Started the car up, and then once they were up, they drove away real fast. So obviously there was concern for your own family, for everybody, and else that went with, with everything that was occurring so there. Going back to an earlier point about the three teams working together, an issue that came up was command and control on the SWAT side. 
In other words, if a tactical incident occurred, who would be in charge? Besides, if it occurred in Montgomery County, Montgomery County would be the lead agency. It's also decided that if something happened outside of Montgomery County, FBI HRT would be the lead agency. Now, one thing that HRT did that was awesome is they federalized state police SWAT and Montgomery County SWAT, which allowed us to have authority outside our Norbert jurisdiction. So if they chose to, they could take us anywhere they wanted outside our normal jurisdiction. That'd be their call. Yeah, and for folks that don't understand, too, I mean, that's an issue, too, because we're talking about the national capital region. It doesn't take long before you're in another jurisdiction and then another jurisdiction. So, again, you've got D.C., um, you know, you've got two counties in Maryland. You've got, I think, four counties in Virginia plus Alexandria, Arlington. I mean, there are a couple hundred agencies, you know, just within a stone's throw. And so this whole issue of federalizing allows you guys to be able to operate. And it's a liability issue, too, because now you can take action and do what you need to do wherever it is and not worry about, am I in my jurisdiction or not, you know? And, you know, hey, but the, the coolest part, right, because Steve knows this, too, you didn't, you, you didn't wear an FBI badge. You called DEA up and said, hey, can I have one of your guys' badges because I want to be way cool, right? <laughs> Everybody does, especially uh, you guys from Kansas. But, you know, I mean, that does, that federalization gives you the legal authority to go enforce the law. And that and that is monumental because without it, you're just another, uh, you know, just another citizen with a gun out there. You have no protection. Yeah, when you cross, a, when, when you cross your jurisdictional boundaries, you've really got no more authority than the next guy. But, but, but Jeff, this is all going on. And so, I mean, but, but so what I want to do is kind of move forward now to October 7th because now another shooting happens. Uh, in Bowie, Maryland. Talk about that one. Now, I, I'll be glad to. A question I have to you. Would you like to hear about our plan for responding to in-county shootings and out-of-county shootings? Yeah, you know what? Let's let's hold on to that for a little bit. Let's work through some of the ones because what I want to do is talk about because we're going to get into the planning part, obviously, too, when we start talking about the takedown. Um, but let's work through a couple more of the shootings here. Can do. And well, prior to that, what's important is in Montgomery County, uh, decided to protect the schools. In other words... Um, there was concern about the welfare of students in school. So with that, officers were deployed when schools opened and closed. The principals um, canceled all school activities after school, and nobody was allowed to leave during the day. Or the FBI helicopters and state police helicopters hovered low and loud in the schools open to give you a strong presence. Now, our neighboring jurisdiction, Prince George's County, they had not experienced an early onslaught that we had. And as such, they had no upgraded security at schools. On October 7th of 2002, Tanya Brown is uh, dropping off uh, Iran Brown at Tasker Middle School. As he exits the uh, vehicle, he's shot in the back. Tanya sees this happen, backs the car up, and he climbs back into the car. She calls 911 and transports him to uh, Dewey Medical Center, where he survives. And I got to tell you, those two people are heroes. Tanya Brown for her, you know, quick actions to save his life, and 13-year-old Iran Brown for having the mindset and fortitude to survive. Oh, that just kills me. Who the hell would shoot a 13-year-old in the back? I got to tell you, that day that I heard that, that come over the news, I got to tell you how fucking pissed I was. It was like, suit me up. I'll get out there. I'll do something. It's like, not that anybody should be a target, but now what we're doing is it's, now think about the terror that you're instilling. Now it's school kids. Now schools are vulnerable. And I thought at that time that was part of their plan is to really put this region in fear and keep them in fear. And what better way in their minds to do it than to shoot a kid? And I'll share with you something that makes it even more awful. After the suspects were in custody, 
we found out it was supposed to be a mass shooting of the kids from an investigator told me. They, they told me that uh, what happened was a school bus loaded with kids pulled in and an empty school bus pulled in front, blocking the sniper's view. And poor Iran Brown happened to be a target of opportunity. Unbelievable. I mean, just unfreaking believable. Well, look, I, I'm going to l- let's rewind a little bit because you talked about your plan. I think this is a great time. Let's just go ahead and talk about that plan, because at this point, you know, what we're seeing is these shootings are now starting to occur all over the place. Let's go. What was how did when did this planning start? Who led the planning and what was the plan? We had two types of responses. What we do for an in-county shooting and out-of-county shooting. So I'll start with in-county shooting. If a uh, shooting occurred in Montgomery County, and I told you our teams were mix and match, so we had 10 three-man teams out there at any time of SWAT guys. If a county occurred in, in Montgomery County, our goal was to get one of these three-man teams on scene within two to three minutes. And their responsibility would be site security. Now, from the scene of that shooting, we'd create a concentric circle of three to five miles in radius. All the traffic lights in Montgomery County operate on an automated system. So all these traffic lights would put on flashing red. And what I have to do is slow the egress of any suspects leaving the scene. Now, staged at key points would be plainclothes units, and they look for any vehicle one to look at, a white box truck or whatever it may be, or, any, or other suspicious vehicle. And in proximity to them would be our three-man SWAT teams. So the vehicle need to stop, SWAT would stop and investigate. And that was kind of our plan for an in-county shooting. Now, the shooting occurred out of county, because many occurred in Virginia, south of us. Every plainclothes unit SWAT guy had a location to respond to. The idea was to monitor every point of entry back into Montgomery County. Once again, looking for suspicious persons, plainclothes units, and the SWAT units in support. That's kind of the game plan for any county or out-of-county shooting. Now, did, did you guys stop the same white box trucks more than once? And actually, uh, what happened more so was the white fans. I'll get into that after the Linda Franklin shooting, but it's a great question, great point. I'm sure we did with the white box trucks, but the vans down the line becomes problematic. You're right. Well, no, and anything white that looks like a van or a box truck is automatically suspicious, you know, and that's, and again, that goes to the danger of when a narrative gets out there into the media and they start latching onto it after every, because I remember when you guys shut down traffic there, I remember when shootings happened in uh, Prince William County, the the traffic, it took months to clear this traffic out. I mean, it felt like, because it was just like, but you know, I don't remember any road rage incidents. I think people understood is that when something like that happened, my other concern was, though, is that when you have all of those cars stop like that, they also become easy targets. You know, in our area, we have some of the rudest drivers, and you can read surveys, and you find out the people in the in the capital <laughs> area region are some of the rudest drivers in the United States. But when there's a tragedy like this, whether it was 9-11, remember how every, understanding everybody became, the D.C. sniper issue, everybody became... I don't know. It's like it jailed everybody together, brought you together against a common enemy out there because nobody knew who the next victim was. But it doesn't last long. Everybody goes back to being a jerk quickly. No, they go back to being assholes and rude <laughs> and jerks. And uh, but but at least during the time. But but Jeff, you had the in county. What what was the out of county? How did how did those things work together? Well, once again, the out of county response. We were monitoring all the traffic that came back into the county. That was be our response. But what happened was there's a series of shootings that would continue thereafter in Virginia. And I'll kind of take you through those, if you will. Yeah. Um, on October 9th, Dean Harold Myers, he's 50 years old. He's shot and killed at the battlefield of uh, Sunoco in Manassas. Then uh, two days after that, on October 11th, at 9.28 p.m., Kenneth Bridges, age 43, he shot and killed at an Exxon station in Spotsylvania County. 
And then October 4th, or October 14th at 9.15 p.m., FBI analyst Linda Franklin is shot in a Home Depot parking lot in Fairfax County. Now, with the shooting of Linda Franklin, um, a witness reports seeing a suspicious white van. And the sound of shots uh, came from the proximity of this white van. So our uh, lookout uh, went from white box truck to a white van. And a check through MVA showed there's like 10,000 white vans registered in the Washington metropolitan area. Well, that really narrows it down, doesn't it? <laughs> and going back to your point, Steve, earlier, which is a very good one, you know, so many white box, uh, boxes of white vans out there. But what we found out was that um, over time, we were stopping the same uh, white van over and over again. So to alleviate this problem, we put these small identifiable stickers on the license plate to prevent it from happening. Now, we'll show you the tactic we used is that every white van we stopped, we stopped hundreds of them, use a tactic called position to call. When we position a cover, we call the occupants back to us, pat them down, sit them on the curb. And then we go, one guy would stay with them, two others would go clear the vehicle. And going back to your earlier point, uh, Morgan, a very good one, is that we did this hundreds of times to people with no complaints from the public because they understood the magnitude of the situation. Yeah. And that's phenomenal, too, because today, you know, holy cow, people just, people just happen to see that would be complaining about it. Yeah, and, and the shootings don't stop there, obviously, in Virginia, too, because in Ashland, Virginia, just north of Richmond there, uh, and that was on October 19th, you've got uh, another guy shot down in Hanover County. And so, like you said, not that you guys are getting a reprieve, but a lot of this now looks like it's centralized in Virginia, but the op tempo is still high, right? You guys are still working 12-hour shifts. You still got everybody deployed. And now you, you just don't have coordination within uh, Maryland. You've got to now bring D.C. in because you've got people shot there. You've got Virginia now. So this becomes one of, I mean, I guess next to 9-11, I mean, basically one of the largest law enforcement operations ever in the national capital region. To my knowledge, at that point in time, yes, it was one of the largest, without question. You know, and and I'm guessing that uh, Henrico County down where Richmond is in Virginia, you know, they're probably being on alert, too, because Ashland's not that far away. It's just right down the interstate. Yeah, and and that's what I'm saying. When you start looking through it, and we're going to go through something interesting here in a little bit with you, Jeff. Um, But let's, let's work through this because this... Unbeknownst to you, but this case is starting to come to a close. I mean, um, and there's a reason, too, for you folks that are listening. We haven't gone into a lot of the other details about how they developed evidence and the note and the communication stuff going back and forth, because that's kind of that is that is a story in and of itself. And we don't want to take away from Jeff's story. This is about what led to the ultimate takedown of these guys. So don't worry. It's not that we're ignoring it. We know there's a lot of stuff there. But this is really focusing on getting down to that point to where these guys are taken into custody. And that's what starts leading in. So. So, um, you know, like I said, October 19th, you've got Jeff Hopper shot in the abdomen. He survives um, October 22nd. Now, now we're back into uh, October 22nd. We're back into Maryland, Jeff. Yes, we're back in Montgomery County. And October 22nd, what happened was uh, Conrad Johnson, age 35, he's a bus driver for the Montgomery County Metro Transit System. And he's in his bus, and it's still dark outside. It's 5.55 a.m. And he's shot. He has a trainee with him. He's transported to uh, Suburban Hospital, uh, Airlift, where he dies. Now, where he is shot is in Aspen Hill, Maryland, which is where the Michael store is located, where he shot through the uh, glass. It's where the cab driver, Walker, was shot at the gas station. And it's just around the corner from uh, where Bill Faust was buried at the Gate of Heaven Cemetery. So the point is, uh, Aspen Hill, Maryland, seemed to be a popular place uh, for these uh, suspects at this time. 
Wow. And, and like I said, so by that time, and see, this is unbeknownst to you guys too, uh, well, and maybe not, but there were some other shootings tied in that happened down in Georgia, Alabama, and Louisiana that were tied to these guys. Did you know about it at the time, or did you just learn about it after the fact? Um, we learned about it after the fact. It may have been shared, but I don't recall having knowledge of it. Again, you made a good point earlier. You had many aspects going. You had the investigative aspect going on and the tactical aspect. Our focus was what are we looking for here and now to end this? And uh, fortunately, yeah. some, some things played out very soon thereafter. Oh, yes. Yes, they did. Let's go into that in a second. But let's one more piece of context before the first shooting, October 2nd, um, which was uh, Martin. And then the three, the four shootings on October 3rd, three other people had been killed by Malvo and Muhammad, uh, one on 21 September in Atlanta, Georgia, one on 21 September in Montgomery, Alabama, which caused confusions because there was was it Montgomery County or Montgomery, Alabama. And then on um, uh, 23rd of September uh, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So we've got those killings down there. We've got these killings now. Uh, and now October 22nd, uh, like you say, uh, Mr. Johnson is killed. But things, after, starting on October 22nd, right, things really start developing from a suspect identification standpoint. No doubt. Through lengthy investigative efforts, uh, uh, the suspects uh, soon thereafter are identified as uh, Lee Boyd Malvo, and John Allen Muhammad. And it's your call, but if you'd like to give you a little background on them, or if you'd like to, you, you can as well. Well, let's, let's, I don't want to give these guys, uh, you know, one of the things we don't want to do is give these guys any airtime really more than what they deserve. Cause really this, you know, this story is about you, not about them. This is about you capturing them. These guys, their stories, unfortunately have been told by too many other people. Let's just put it this way. Uh, Muhammad, former army, you know, some training, uh, Malvo, 17 year old, you know, ended up hooking up with him. They said under his spell, but, you know, that's good enough because at the end of the day, these guys, both of them are just fucking killers. That's, that's what it boils down to. I hear you loud and clear. And after late investigative efforts, obviously they're identified and they're believed to operate a 1990 uh, blue Chevy Caprice. If I recall the tag, I think it was NDA-21Z Zebra. Investigators were faced with a dilemma at this point. Do they release this intel to the media, in which case they'll be a, a public be looking for the vehicle? But the concern was maybe they could get rid of it and disappear in the shadows. But the greater concern was what happens if a law enforcement guy goes up on this gets shot. Yeah. Well, Jeff, now you mentioned, you mentioned a point, and I don't want to give away too much of what I'm about to tell you, but I know because this is part of what I briefed the FBI on, we'll talk about it later, about the number of times law enforcement had already had contact or had checked their license plate by that date. So your point is valid. You know what it bring, reminds me of, too? It's the Unabomber manifesto. The only way they caught the Unabomber was they decided they had to release the manifesto, so they put it in the Washington Post and the New York Times. This is another big decision, Jeff. Walk us through um, what you remember about them saying, hey, let's release this information. Yeah, so ultimately that information is released. And very quickly thereafter, what happens is on the early morning hours of October 24th at maybe 12:31 o'clock in the morning, a uh, citizen named Whitney Donahue. He's appliance repairman that works the D.C. region. He's returning to his home in Pennsylvania, and to break up the trip, he pulls into a rest stop that's off of Interstate 70, just west of Myersville, Maryland. And as he pulls in, he sees a blue Chevy Caprice backed in along the wood line in a defensive posture with very heavy tinted windows. And he notes the tag they've written down, and he realizes this is a suspect vehicle. So what he does, he pulls in the far end of the lot. 
And he's driving all things a white van. Wait a minute. Whitney is driving a white van. Yeah. The hero of the day is driving a white yeah, van. Yeah. Hey, can I ask one question? How did you get the information that, how did you get the information on the Chevy Caprice? Where did that come from? Um, investigators had finally had determined that, uh, in some fashion, that vehicle was registered to uh, Muhammad, is my understanding. Well, and real quickly, too, part of the way that came back, it came through fingerprints on a magazine that was dropped uh, at one of the sites. It came back from, yeah, as they started tying one, and and uh, Muhammad's fingerprints were in the system. So that thing led to that, led to the identification of another shooting that happened. And then, obviously, they run uh, Malvo's, uh, Muhammad's name, and they get... By the way, you, here's a piece of irony. I was going to save it, but this is the time to talk about it. So uh, the vehicle was registered uh, in New Jersey on September 11th, 2002, exactly one year to the date after 9-11. Uh, Muhammad registers a blue Chevy Caprice with New Jersey license plates. And when you said a fingerprint was found on a magazine, we're not talking about people or time, are we? We're talking about an ammo No, magazine. we're talking about like... Yeah, I, th I think it was, um, yeah, uh, the clip that, uh, that, you know, like a clip that goes in there. But see, but that's one of the things that caused confusion, too, because in some of the communications they were talking about Montgomery, come to realize later they're talking about Montgomery, Alabama. And that's kind of what led to part of the downfall was the uh, Malvo and Muhammad, you know, basically Muhammad started communicating with law enforcement and teasing them. So they, they use all of that. They bring it together again. That's a whole nother story. Let's let's go back to you here, Jeff. So you guys have got the information. You've got you now know the vehicle. Tell me about. Hey, I'm sitting here snapping my fingers. It's like things got to start be happening at freaking light speed. So what happens is uh, Whitney Donahue calls Maryland State Police. Now he cannot determine if anybody's in the vehicle. It's a heavy tinted windows. Maryland State Police shuts down the interstate uh, in both directions, so nobody can access the rest stop. They also, in a covert fashion, take a tractor trailer and block the return ramp to the interstate. This is done out of sight of the suspect vehicle. And they contact the FAA. They want the airspace declared restricted so media can't come over and compromise this operation. Now, just prior to all this happening, what happened is, you know, we're working night shift, and an individual had called from Milton Community Center in Silver Spring claiming to be the sniper. And we thought this was either a bogus call or that we're being set for an ambush. So we had responded there, and our teams had cleared the area, the parking vehicles in the area, and the Maryland State Police helicopter went over and cleared the woods with its fluids, forward-looking infrared device. And our guys were about to go in with uh, the night vision gear to clear it. We had responded to the command vehicle. That was our vehicle, myself, Keith Runk, and uh, Chuck Pierce, who were the... Uh, team leaders for the uh, event. I don't know if I had mentioned them earlier, but my vehicle was the command vehicle, and with, with me was Chuck Pierce uh, from the FBI HRT, who was the team leader, and, the, uh, and Keith Long from Maryland State Police, who was the uh, state police uh, team leader. So we were there to coordinate this final uh, uh, response, if you will. And uh, as we're getting ready to our guys ready to go in, we get this phone call that the suspect vehicle has been uh, located 50 miles away in Myersville, Maryland. And we are to respond there ASAP. So what happens is we start driving. About two minutes into response, we get another phone call. That we're responding to Richard Montgomery High School, where a Dolphin helicopter would take our vehicle with the two or three team leaders, myself, Keith Long from Maryland State Police, and Chuck Pierce from HRT. And the idea was to get the team leaders up there ahead of the main tactical unit so that we could have an operational plan in place. And that was a Maryland State Police helicopter, right? Uh, that's correct. I got to tell you, 
When I pulled up and I saw that uh, helicopter sitting at the 50-yard line, man, I love helicopters. <laughs> and now we're going to have a chance to get these guys. I didn't say it out loud, but I did double-check my gears when I'm running to it. I'm going, keep your Kaye, let's go get these guys. I mean, I mean, I, mean, I was excited. I mean, this, this was like my dream come true, you know? So as I remember, it was a clear, cool, crisp night. As our helicopter uh, lifts off about 50 degrees outside, I look down. I see this column of uh, emergency lights going north in the interstate, uh, north and west. And what's this is our tactical team that had been assembled to uh, respond. A 19-man team had been assembled. Nine from the FBI hostage rescue team, five from uh, uh, Maryland State Police SWAT, and five from Montgomery County SWAT. And I'll bet, you, I'll bet you that looked like a NASCAR race on that interstate, did it? Oh, yeah. They, they, they were moving. <laughs> and uh, the uh, uh, thing of it was, now that it's occurring outside of Montgomery County, FBI HRT became the lead agency. And they were in charge. Chuck Pierce would be the operational team leader for FBI HRT, putting together a plan. And Gary Bald would be the overall commander, the SAC, the special agent in charge. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, as we're going north, we kind of look down there in the interstate, and we see all these guys down here responding. Now, what would happen is there would be a six-man assault team. The assault team would consist of the three team leaders. That's uh, Chuck Pierce from the HRT, Keith Runk uh, from Maryland State Police, and myself. In addition, three other HRT members would be uh, part of the assault team. Uh, Paul Jaska, Neil Darnell, and William McCarthy. So you've got four FBI HRT, one Maryland State Police, and one Montgomery County. Uh, that is correct. That would be the assault team. Now we land in Myersville in a Burger King lot and we're transported by MSP Cruiser across to a McDonald's lot where everybody's assembling. Now what's interesting is uh, Keith Runk is a state trooper. He knew that rest stop well. So he drives up, uh, draws up a diagram for Chuck Pierce and Gary Bold who are putting together the operational plan. As he's doing that, other members of our uh, who have been responding start to arrive. Now, because we are a mix and match team of three agencies, um, the other five of us do a quick uh, dry rehearsal on a state uh, trooper corps of the takedown, how we're going to do it. And while this is occurring, uh, two HRT operators who did not stand at that job that night were uh, uh, um, John Landman and uh, uh, Matt Lotspeak. And what they did is they got the assignments together for the perimeter team and the sniper team. And once everybody's briefed, which happened very quickly, we uh, were transported to the uh, rest stop. So what I'd like to do is kind of give you an outline of the rest stop so you have an idea of what it looks like. Yeah. So if you're driving down the interstate, the rest stop is on your right-hand side, the ramp. And it sits kind of up on an elevated position. Now, imagine the suspect vehicle is blue caprice backed in along the wood line. And I want to imagine that you're looking at it from behind. If you hit the parking lot from behind, they'd be favoring the left side of the lot. The right side of the lot would be where Whitney Donahue is, who is looking at the vehicle from the white van. Now, that lot is probably 100 yards wide and 40 yards across. And on the other side of the lot are these outstructers, you know, uh, restrooms and things of that nature. And on the other side is that return ramp. And out of sight is a tractor trailer that is blocking uh, the way back to the interstate. Hey, and Jeff, at this time, uh, Whitney Donahue, he is still there, right, in the van? He's in the van for Ryan Intel for the entire time. So he's, this is early on, too. I mean, so he's got a cell phone. He's on the phone. Um, yeah, wow. He did a great job that night. And then the left of where uh, the vehicle was parked is a wood line that separates the interstate 
from the rest area itself. And that's kind of the layout of the rest stop, if you will. You know, here's what's interesting real quick too, Jeff. This, this all happened, like you said, very quickly. I know you guys were confident in your abilities, but man, you would have really liked, it would have been great to have more time to train because you had no idea up until basically that point that you're going after two guys in a car, right? Right. That was very spontaneous. And, uh, you know, as SWAT teams, you always prepare for a host of scenarios. And the one thing I would tell you is that uh, Chuck Pierce, the HRT team leader, and Gary Bolt, the overall commander, they did a great job along with assistance from uh, Landman and uh, uh, Matt Lotsky putting together this operational plan. It was, it was, what they did in the aftermath they looked at it was a very good job, and I'll share that with you. One question is, uh, and this is just out of curiosity, where did they get the tractor trailer to block the entrance ramp so if they did take off, they couldn't get back on the interstate? I was told that uh, an MSA trooper actually uh, uh, kind of flagged down a uh, tractor trailer that was in proximity there, and they did so. Yeah, you know, the vast majority, I mean, we all get on the interstate, we think tractor trailer drivers are, are jerks, to be honest with you, but uh, the truth is they're some of the first to stop and help law enforcement when there's a problem. So that was pretty cool that, you know, the, the man offered up his truck and, you know, to a certain degree, his safety to assist law enforcement. Without question, that's a great point. I mean, I was amazed. So, so Jeff, this thing is starting to come together now. So now, hey, real quick, Look, my daughter now lives west of Frederick, Maryland with her husband, a Marine formerly on active duty. And so I know that area well because we've been up through it many times. I know exactly the rest area you're talking about over there by Myersville because we've driven past it several times on I-70 going towards where they live. But when you land in a Burger King, you know, even at that time of night, there's, you got to be attracting attention. What the hell are all these lights doing here? And why is a helicopter landing in the Burger King lot? Yeah, fortunately, the uh, Burger King and the rest stop were some distance apart. Yeah. You know, I would say maybe, I'm going to guess maybe five miles apart, not knowing any different. And, uh, but uh, obviously, there's a lot of activity taking place there. Were you getting a lot of looky-loos, just, you know, tourists driving by looking to see, hey, what's going on here? Well, it's so early in the morning at this point. It's probably, you know, we're probably talking about maybe 2, 33 o'clock uh, the morning we're rolling into. And I guarantee you some of the people are driving by are going, ah, they heard about the two Big Macs, you know, or two big, uh, what do you call them, Whoppers at Burger King for six bucks. Look, the, the troops are coming yeah, in. Yeah, then breakfast. a donut joke. Here comes a donut joke. So you guys are <laughs> ready here for your donuts, right? So, oh, yeah. But you, so, so uh, on a scale of one to 10, pucker factor, 10 being a big pucker factor, where are you guys at right now? I mean, I know you've trained for this, but look, don't give me that stuff. Well, I'm calm, I'm cool. This has got to be like, from a professional standpoint, you got to be, we're taking down the snipers. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I think it was like 42, 43 years old. At that point, I'd done like 3,000 raids, barricades. And, you know, um, I'm not trying to say that I was brave or anything like that, but I was excited. I saw it as an opportunity. When you have a passion for something, you've waited your whole life for this opportunity. So for me, you know, the bottom line is I had great confidence in the guys around me and who we were with. There was no doubt that we were going to win. Yeah, and here's, here's a, a saying that I love to use. When you find a job you like, you never work a day in your life. Did you find that job, Jeff, as being a SWAT man? Without question. I love, you know, every day was a day in paradise to me. Well, a day without kicking in a door is like no day at all, you know. So, uh, Jeff, it, when, when he wasn't on duty, he'd kick in his own door, you know. Hey, but, but Jeff, so you, you guys, you, you now you, you've trained. You've at least done uh, a couple runs on the state trooper car. Walk us through now what happens from that day, because at some point you've got to execute. So walk us through that. So what happens is uh, Maryland State Police drives us in the cruisers with the lights out, and we stop well shy of the rest stop itself. And here we get out and quietly deploy. So concern we have is if the snipers are not in the uh, 
vehicle, could they be in the woods behind it, warn some of the outstructures? So the game plan is sniper teams will deploy into the wood line behind the suspect vehicle with night vision gear and thermals, and they will clear that wood line. And then once they do so, they will set up online across that entire parking lot, covering the suspect vehicle and the outstructures. While this is occurring simultaneously, a printer element would uh, move into that left flank, that wooded area, to the left of where the sniper vehicle was. And between the two in combination, the entire uh, parking lot and structure would be uh, covered with interlocking fields of fire. So they had what was called a tactical L. Now, while these guys were deploying, you know, obviously, once again, we were concerned they're in the woods, and we think tacks, you think uh, if there's two, there could be three, there could be four, and so on. And while this is occurring, Chuck Pierce, the HRT chief, and Keith Runk, who knew the uh, uh, rest stop well, they quote, low crawled in the shadows along this ditch, and they got an eye on the sniper vehicle. So they came back, and what they said was, they couldn't determine if anybody was in that vehicle at that point. So soon thereafter, uh, Matt uh, Lotspeak, the HRT guy, he comes back, he helped deploy the sniper teams. He says the snipers have confirmed the tag number as that of the suspect vehicle. He said that from their position, they could not see uh, if anybody was in the vehicle. Now, a good point that uh, Pierce made, he said, look, once we moved to do the assault, do not turn the white lights on your uh, weapon system on until the actual breaching stops, because we don't want to do anything but compromise our approach. Because basically, we're going to approach the suspect vehicle from behind, out of the woods. So at this point, the sniper teams have deployed, perimeter team is deployed, and uh, we're led to where the suspect vehicle is by uh, HRT oper operator uh, Lotspeak. It's very dark outside, and there were six of us. Now, I was number six in the column, moved staggered file permission. One of us is very steep embankment, I remember. And I, our steps were very careful. I just watched for each man in front of me steps, and we were dressed in black fatigues, uh, had heavy body armor on, ballistic helmets. HRT and uh, Keith wanted the state trooper were armed with 223 caliber carbines and or rifles. And I was armed with a 9mm uh, MP5 submachine gun. So the game plan would be this on the assault. Keith Runk and I would post as designated shooters. And we basically have two elements, a left side element and a right side element. It was thought that one guy might be in the back seat and one might be in the front seat as they look out. I would post behind the left trunk as a designated shooter. My responsibility would be the left interior of the vehicle. As I posted, two HRT operators would come up and breach and extract anybody who was in the driver's seat. Simultaneous to our action, uh, Keith Runk would post on the right side behind the trunk. He would be a designated shooter on the right interior. And simultaneous, two HRT operators would come up and breach extract anybody that was in the rear from the right, uh, right rear passenger seat. And that was our game plan. So we move up through these woods about 70 yards, and we make the left. As we make the left, um, we're now turning towards the parking lot. And the bright lights of the parking lot uh, are illuminating the suspect field. I can see it. It's the blue Chevy Caprice they had talked about with the trunk facing us. So we're now on final approach. And as we close the distance, we get within about 50 yards, the woods start to thin. The pointman does a real good job of keeping what woods remain between us and the suspect vehicle. And then we keep moving. And ultimately, we're about 20 yards of the suspect vehicle. And we form behind two oak trees, or two elements, left and right. 
It's kind of our last position of cover of concealment. Once we break here, we'll be illuminated by the bright lights of the parking lot. And even from here, we cannot see inside that vehicle with anybody inside it. We're ready to go. So Pierce, the team leader, holds up his fingers. Three, two, one. We burst from the wood line. I post on the left side of the trunk, behind the trunk. And as I do so, Pierce and Paul Jaskett, two HRT operators, breach and extract Malvo, who had fallen asleep as a lookout in the front uh, driver's seat. He's taken down. And suddenly, right in front of me, hands come up. And this is Muhammad in the back seat. Simultaneous direction on the left side, Keith Runkett posted on the right as a designated shooter. And Neil Donnell and McCarthy started the, the breach on the right passenger uh, door. Uh, Muhammad follows their commands to slide across the back seat, and he's extracted and cuffed there. So at this point, I see that Malvo's down to the left and Muhammad's down to the right. I take about three steps back and I cover the trunk. I call for Keith Runk to get the keys. He quickly does so and comes back. He takes a knee, drops low, and an HRT operator to my right picks up covers on the trunk. I give him a nod, he pushes open the trunk, HRT operator calls clear, I call clear. So at this point, both suspects are down and the trunk is cleared. And it was quick and decisive, I would say it's probably, from the moment we broke the wood line, uh, breach and extraction of both suspects, including the trunk, maybe 45 seconds. Hey, and, and Jeff, when you talk about breaching the vehicle, let people know, what does breaching the vehicle mean? What, what actions did they take? Because you're obviously not putting an explosive charge on the window on this one. <laughs> no, you, you, you're using a, uh, a device to break the windows. And with that, you can quickly unlock that door and extract the individuals outside. You're right. It's, a, it's not anything of that nature. Well, that would have been fun, though. But, uh, yeah, we don't want to blow up uh, car windows because you do want – but, but uh, short of it, we're going to get into the rest of it here in a bit. But the long and short of it, from the time you sprinted till you got them out of the vehicle and these guys are cuffed and stuff and on the ground, it's about 45 seconds. Uh, that's correct. Oh, man. You talk about swiftness and violence of action, man. Now I can take a deep breath. Hey, I'm sitting here. We're both sitting here. It's like, okay, okay. I'm trying to move. I'm going to miss something. Yeah. I'm trying to crawl on the screen here so I get in the room with Jeff and hear this story. So, Jeff, just be honest with us. I mean, really, how, and I'm not, this is not a, a joking question. How did it feel the minute when you, when they, when you finally realized we got them, they're both in custody, nobody's hurt, the trunk is cleared? What did that feel like at that moment? And actually, um, it took a few more moments for that to occur, but it's still something else that kind of played out. Um, at that point, I took about three steps back. Uh, I looked at the vehicle, and this guy, uh, John Landman, comes up next to me. And I'm looking at the back of the car, and what I'd been looking at it, and the car looked very beat up. And I noticed this hole uh, above the license plate. And what happened was um, I thought it was just consistent with the damage of the vehicle. It's, uh, um, it appeared as if somebody had tried to break in the trunk. But Landman knew for what it was. He points out to me that there's a uh, sock in there to camouflage its appearance. And what it was, a, a port. The snipers were using the uh, trunk as a sniper hide. And uh, that port was, was what they were shooting out of. So it was at that point when I took a few steps back, I kind of realized, hey, you know, we got these guys and, and good to go. And, you know, it, it all happened so fast. It's like so many activities were still occurring. I never really pondered it at that moment because... Uh, Landman and uh, Matt Lithgow, they still had to clear the entire arrest area and this and that. I probably really didn't ponder it until uh, later that morning, to be honest with you. I mean, I was excited we got him, but it was over with, you know? 
but talk about what else you found in the car because the, the, the you were talking about where uh, Muhammad was because um, they're the snipers, right? So what's the thing we're looking for is the rifle. And what's interesting is Pierce, the HRT team leader, um, he's uh, the evidence technician show because there's something unusual about the back seat. So what happens is Muhammad and Malville are transferred by the feds and MSP to wherever they're going to take them. Pierce and I go back, and along with Keith Runk, along with other guys, back to the academy after the uh, rest stop's clear. We arrive at the academy, we find out that behind the black back seat uh, cushions was a 223 caliber Bushmaster rifle that was bungee in place. It had a loaded magazine in it and one live round in the chamber. They're ready to go. They're ready to go. And it had it it had a bipod on there too. I mean, they, they this wasn't just sticking out. This this was they, these guys were set up for a real sniper operation. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Yeah, Bushmaster is a very uh, precise weapon. That's a, it's a very high dollar weapon as well. It's not yeah. It's not your everyday uh, cheap weapon. Did were there any other weapons found? Um, not to my knowledge that I recall. I mean, the big thing is they found the Bushmaster two two three, and after that it was okay. We got them. You know, there's your murder weapon. It's kind of like, what's the next stop, you know, if you're doing. Hey, so Jeff, talk about that, though, the way that was set up in the trunk, though. So was somebody, so the shooter, um, were they were they laying, was the trunk opened at all, or was the entire shot going through the sniper port that was carved into the trunk with the trunk lid closed? Uh, my best estimation from what I saw is that they would fold down that back seat and uh, the shooter would lie in the back there, and that they probably might have had to say very small portion of the uh, rifle come out that small uh, opening, but nothing of any significance to really notice. And that's where they took their shots from, as best I could determine in my best estimation. I haven't lined there in that position, but I don't know for sure. Are they using a scope or are they using open sights? If I recall, I'm trying to think what they had on it. It was a red dot system. What's it? The... Yeah, it's, it's, it's that aim point. Uh, yeah, not the aim point. It was the other one. Uh, oh, um... I can't remember anymore. I lose my thought process with the red dot. Yeah, the red dot. But I, I remember seeing your pictures out of your book and stuff, too. And so when you look at it, it does. It has that red dot sight. It doesn't have a scope on it, you know, and it's got the bipod at the front of it. Yeah, I'm slipping on the uh, uh, system they had on top, but it was not the angle, but the same type of principle. Yeah, same thing is that you're looking through a, you're looking through a finder and you can, put, you can put a dot on something and it's fairly accurate. You know, you know, you kind of go, well, where do you go with this? It's kind of like, man, that's got to be like, you, it finally, but it finally hits you that you've got these guys. And then the news, I can tell you, is, is all over it, right? It's kind of like the region breeze of sigh of relief. Um, but that wasn't the end of the story for these guys with you, though. Um, I mean, you got them into custody. And the reason we're transitioning into this next part of the story, too, is that th- this was a huge impact on you. I mean, it's, you know, this big part of your life. But, um, Malvo, I'm sorry, Muhammad was sentenced and he was executed in uh, 2009, November 10th, 2009. And it wasn't too long after that. And the reason I'm setting this up, folks, is that, and Jeff, I'm just going to tell people is that, look, you're hearing Jeff saying, hey, lost my train of thought for a second, or he's, you know, the breathing and stuff. Jeff, there's a reason for that. I mean, you were now, you just worked with one of the biggest cases of your life. Muhammad had just been executed. But a few months later, you get get a life-changing diagnosis. You get a life-changing piece of information. Let's let, let's walk through that next big piece of your life that all of this training, all of this physical training, all of this SWAT stuff has prepared you for. Yeah, it's actually 2010 when all this occurs. And as I had mentioned to you earlier, in SWAT, uh, there's that PT test we have to pass. And when you're on a central SWAT team, you have to pass it uh, 
quarterly to stay on the team and your firearms. D-SWAT twice a year. And I've always been a decent runner. At age 52, I was running you know, my three miles in like 2030. And all of a sudden, over the course of next year, uh, I noticed this huge increase in my time since I started to run. And I knew something was wrong. I mean, my legs felt like lead when I'd run. I get out of, out of breath very badly. So I sought medical help. I had, uh, it took two years to diagnose what I had because I had some very rare diseases. But back in 2012, I was diagnosed with multimyeloma cancer, which was deemed terminal with no cure. And that's a cancer of the uh, blood that affects your immune system. And I was also diagnosed with cardiac amyloidosis. And uh, what the cardiac amyloidosis does is, if I understand correctly, these proteins that become uh, uh, folded misappropriately that are usually uh, soluble in water. And now they are no longer soluble in water. And they deposit in various organs. And in my case, they deposit the heart, making the walls of my heart very thick and difficult to breathe. On occasion, you may notice I'm a little out of breath. That's just kind of my new norm. No worries, it's just who I am nowadays. So both these uh, uh, these were deemed to be terminal with no available cure. So um, I went through a lengthy period of chemotherapy, had a stem cell transplant in 2013 where I coded. Yeah, hang on before that, though, because I want to ask you a question about that, because w originally when you were given the diagnosis, you were given eight months to live. But you had found out that you'd had it for at least, what, a couple years already, right? Oh, that's correct. The I had research. The diagnosis for un, or the prognosis for undiagnosed uh, cardiac amyloidosis survival rate uh, was eight months for undiagnosed, and I had survived two years undiagnosed. So you're already beating the odds. Uh, so to speak. Well, and then the other one, the, uh, and that, that's the, what you're talking about is also referred to as Congo Red. Congo Red was the, uh, I had a heart biopsy to determine the, that I had the amyloidosis, and that's, Congo Red was the affirmation that I had it. Is there any indication where this came from? Because, look, I, I've run into some friends of mine that um, they've got cancer now, but they can trace it back to exposure to certain chemicals or things like that. Was there anything that they were able to link this to that said, this is where you got this from, or is it just, uh, uh, just one of those things that happens? That's a great question, because I always wanted myself... Nothing specific, but I always wondered over the course of my career, could have been exposed to you know, uh, all the chemical agents you do in uh, uh, law enforcement or maybe uh, the things I inhaled during exposure, which I have no idea, but uh, there is no link to anything uh, particular. So, so walk through that. So because you, I mean, uh, like I said, March of 2011 is when you go to Washington Hospital Center in D.C. Um, and, and folks, the reason I know some of this stuff is not because I just conjured it up out of thin air. I got Jeff's book and it's called Failure's Not an Option. We're going to talk about that. It's on Amazon. Uh, both Steve and I have read this, you know, and obviously, you know, we want to follow your story. We know about the DC sniper thing, but that's in August, 2012, where you had the heart biopsy done, right? So, but the only way to really get rid of this, talk, walk us through how you eventually arrived at doing the stem cell uh, treatment, because that, that really for you was kind of the only way that you're really going to get rid of this cancer, right? Uh, without question. What happens is Ultimately, I go on heavy chemo, and I take a, do a stem cell transplant in uh, April of 2013. That, during that, uh, um, I had a, uh, I coded, and they used a saline and chest compression to be back in the game, so to speak. Now, what happens is, uh, even after stem cell transplant, don't get me wrong, my doctor did a phenomenal job. They took me from death's doorstep, literally, to uh, being just shy of remission. So I do a bunch of heavy chemotherapy thereafter, and then in 2015, I have a 
uh, stroke in the chemo I'm on. But with all this heavy chemo and all the outstanding work my doctors did, I never achieved remission. So what I did was a little research. And what I found is that fasting, there's a lot of research out there that said it could help with uh, cancer in terms of maybe preventing cancer and or preventing existing cancer from spreading. And that may in some ways help your chemotherapy. So I experimented around. And ultimately what I did is I fasted for three months every day, 12 to 14 hours. And after three months, the first time ever in my life, I reached remission. And I feel like maybe this fasting took me over the finish line, so to speak. And again, not to discredit my doctors, they're phenomenal, I've been dead a long time ago. So what I have done is I fasted every day of my life uh, for the last four years, 12 to 14 hours, and I've been in remission ever since. Well, but let's back up a little bit because you kind of, you can't just throw that out there. It says, oh, I coded, and by the way, then we went on to this stuff. So let's talk a little bit. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> like, oh, by the way, I was shot 14 times, but I'm good. It's just a flesh wound. Let's go back and talk about in the, I mean, like I said, this is when you're getting the stem cell transplant at that point, right? So you said, give us a little detail, dude. You just don't go, well, I coded, and then everything else was fine. Walk, what, that day, because the other thing, too, is let me ask you one other question before you get into that. People talk about chemo, and they think you lose your hair. Did you lose any of your hair? Uh, a little bit now, and then ultimately, you know, here or there, but it came back, fortunately. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about the only time you were ever able to successfully pull off a practical joke, because you weren't a good practical, but let's go back. You walk us through going into that stem cell treatment. What kind of things did you have to prepare for? What were they doing to get you ready for this? And what is a stem cell, you know, transplant, you know, treatment? How does that work? And that's a great question. What they do is they remove uh, stem cells from your uh, body and they store them and they're going to be reinserted the day of the stem cell transplant. Now, prior to the stem cell transplant, you get this uh, dose of chemotherapy two days prior called Melflam. And my doctor, Dr. Badros, he said, hey, because of your cardiac amyloidosis, we're going to give you a reduced dosage of the uh, uh, chemotherapy. He said, we're going to give you 140 milligrams or units, whatever it may be. I said, well, what's the ideal uh, amount to get? He says, 200 milligrams. I said, doctor, I said, with all due respect, I said, I know I am dying, and I need the full amount to get the best results from the stem cell transfer. And Badros is a great guy. And he was adamant. He goes, I cannot give you the 200 uh, mil. Because right now there's a 5% chance of death with your procedure. He goes, if I up that, that will severely uh, uh, elevate your chances of death. And I said, doctor, my whole life has been about uh, pushing the limit. I said, I want the 200 mils to give you the best chance of uh, best results from the stem cell transplant. I knew I was dying. This is my one shot of extended life. So finally, he reluctantly agrees. I mean, the guy is awesome. So the day of my stem cell transplant, I'm in the University Medical Center in Baltimore. It's on the ninth floor. In my room, uh, there's a window. It looks out over the city of Baltimore. What day, by the way, what day is this again? October 15th, the day of the Boston Marathon bombings. That's because you were either going to be in Baltimore or Boston, and you ended up being in Baltimore for this treatment, right? And that's a great point. Dr. Cabenzo at Tufts University, he is very uh, good at cardiac amyloidosis, one of the top in the world in terms of uh, taking care of that. So he had offered, he actually even called me to show you how professional he is. Out of the blue, he's at a conference in California. He takes time to call me on his telephone to say, hey, if you want, I'll give you your stem cell transplant. Ultimately, I declined to have him. It had been 
The guy was awesome. The reason I declined is I would have had to go to Boston. But I want to be local, next, near my wife, my son, and the SWAT team. So ultimately it played out because on that day that I got stem cell training, it was the day the Boston Marathon bombings occurred where I think three were killed and 287 injured. I thought to myself, my gosh, what would happen if I'd gone to Boston to get this done on this day? So it played out well, ultimately. So now you, you, they, they take the stem cells out. You're coming in for treatment that day. And you finally talked to the doctor because the other thing, that was the lesson that I think you said you even learned from Drew Tracy. He said, quit researching, quit listening to shit on the Internet. you got to be your own advocate. And this was you being your own advocate to say, look, I get it. But my body, you know, in terms of I, I know what I can take, give me the 200 milligrams. Absolutely. You make a great point. because Drew Tracy, he also had won the toughest cop uh, a lot of competition years back. And he survived stage four cancer. So I listened to his words very acutely, always be your own advocate. Mm-hmm. So um, what happens is uh, uh, I am told there are two and a half bags of stem cells they got to put back into me. And it kind of looks like, for lack of a better way, like they're these IV bags. So I'm sitting, there's no pain. And they start to put the first bag in. After the first bag goes in, they ask how you feel. I tell you, I'm feeling really loopy, like this is going south. But I didn't want to say anything that would affect you, me not getting all my stem cells. So you take the second bag out and switch it in. At the point, I should get really loopy. Didn't you say something about having an out-of-body experience, like you were floating? Yeah, what happened was all of a sudden I was having this out-of-body experience. I was flying high over the city of Baltimore with my arms out, almost like a bird. And all of a sudden I was from above, could see myself. Uh, I could see myself through the window in the uh, um, room that I was in. And what happened was as I kind of came out as the last drops of the last bag of my stem cells went into me. Now, all of a sudden, that was the last thing I remember. When I woke up, all of a sudden, there was a crash cart next to me with a defibrillator uh, and uh, uh, a bunch of medical personnel. And that's when I learned that I had coded, chest compression, saline brought me back. So I spent that night in ICU. And the next day, I'm back in the transplant unit, and Dr. Badgers comes in. He's all upset because I knew I should not have given you that 200 milligrams. I said, Dr. Badgers, you did exactly what I want you to do. And now I have a real shot at survival. I admire the man for having the courage to think outside the box. To me, he's a true hero. I've talked to others in the medical profession who all have said, yeah, there's probably some little question what he did. But many of them have said, my gosh, you probably would not be alive if it was not for that man. And I absolutely agree. He's my hero. He saved me that day. And let's talk a little bit, because Murphy, this reminds me of a little bit of the Kevin Stevens story. So we did a podcast with uh, Murph's partner, uh, Kevin Stevens, who was shot, was spending time in the hospital, uh, you know, lucky to survive, you know. Um, and But they were sneaking him in something different than you. You're, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're the health nut. You're the guy that's working out. They're sneaking Kevin in beer. What are your buddies sneaking you in the hospital? You know, weights. <laughs> Oh my God. You could have had beer and instead you get weights. Well, here's a guy that's worked out every day of his life, right? So it's just another workout for you. How how important was it for you to stay working out? Um, they had stuck in some weights for me. And, you know, I believe a body at rest stays at rest and a body in motion stays in motion. So, you know, after I had these, uh, uh, I had coded, they had all these, these heart monitors hooked up to me. And there was an exercise room at the end of the hallway. So on occasion, I would go down there and encourage you to walk on the treadmill. But I had this uh, cart that was whole, all these things hooked up to me. So anytime I left, I'd put this mask on. So one, the first day, you know, post-stem cell, I take my cart and say, let's do this. I walk down. Wait I get a minute. On the, uh, 
you, you have coded, you spent the night in ICU, this is the day after the stem cell, and you're getting your happy ass up out of bed walking down to get on the treadmill? Correct. And I got on the treadmill, and I started walking at an incredibly slow pace. I can't tell you how slow it Dude, was. Dude, I don't care if it's an incredibly slow glacial pace. I'm, I'm amazed <laughs> he got out of the bed. Oh, my God. Suddenly, all these nurses come rushing in, and they tell me, hey, we want you to go on the treadmill, but anytime you do it, you have to notify us. So apparently, my heart rate went up, and they fought like I was coding again. <laughs> so I said, okay, I get you. Well, thanks for being that alert. So then I go back to the uh, uh, room. At this point, I get the weights I've hidden. And the only place I can work out is the bathroom. It's the only place there is. So this cart next to me, and I'm doing reps. I'm sorry. This... <laughs> Here's a guy, highly trained SWAT operator. All I can think of you is in one of the frickin' hospital gowns with your ass hanging out. You're wheeling everything into your bathroom to get to your secret stash of weights. What have we sunk to? Oh, it's super light, light weights. So I exercise again. And of course, my heart rate goes up. I didn't think about it. And they come rushing in. I get caught. Did they take your weights away from you? They were so cool about it. They said, look, we don't get you. But uh, you can work out. Just tell us when you're going to. So, so they're, really, they're really good about it. This is the end of episode 18, part one, Jeff Nice and the Beltway Snipers, the real story of the takedown. Make sure you stay tuned for part two, though. We actually have something we've never done before. It's really cool. It's called an embedded episode within the episode. We've talked to somebody who's got some really good firsthand knowledge on something that never made it really into the papers. Nobody really talked about. So it's the inside story about some of the evidence out of the Beltway Sniper case. And Steve Murphy, the Murph man, was able to come up with somebody to talk about that who was actually there and did the work on this evidence. So make sure you stay tuned for episode 18, part two, when we discuss that. In the meantime, go visit us on social media, uh, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Make sure you go visit us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of new information and content coming out all the time. We talked about the Gabby Petito case. We've talked about uh, how to investigate homicides. We've got your Q&A coming up. And this month, it's Leo DiCaprio month. You get to vote on which movie we review that the Murph man and I talk about and put through our patented narcometer. So stay tuned. Episode 18, part two, Jeff Nice and the Beltway Sniper, the real story is coming at you.